This is Jocko Podcast number 386 with Echo Charles and me, Jocko Willink. Good evening, Echo. Good evening. Even after the bullet cut through his leg and severed his femoral artery, First Lieutenant David R. Bernstein had a chance. The shooting stopped quickly, and a soldier trained in combat medical care was at Bernstein's side almost immediately. Helicopters landed, and minutes later, the young platoon leader was surrounded by four surgeons and all the equipment of a modern battlefield trauma center. Lieutenant Bernstein died that night in Iraq, despite getting the best emergency medical care the Army had to offer. But doctors who specialize in combat injuries and who reviewed the details of the case provided by the Sun question whether the 24-year-old West Point graduate might have lived if the Army had had something else to offer. A $20 nylon and plastic tourniquet. Bernstein was riding in the passenger seat of a Humvee near Kirkuk on October 18, 2003, part of a three-vehicle convoy of the 173rd Airborne Brigade when Iraqi insurgents ambushed the convoy with rifle fire and rocket-propelled grenades. According to Joshua Sams, a former Army specialist who was driving the Humvee that day, Bernstein was shot through his left thigh at an angle, leaving an entry wound about an inch and a half above his knee and an exit wound about four inches above his knee. Sams, who had been trained under the Army's Combat Lifesaver Program to treat trauma injuries, tried to use the cotton straps from a standard field dressing to put a makeshift tourniquet on Bernstein's leg, but the material broke apart under the pressure. By the time he could apply something more substantial, using the sling from an M4 rifle and the nozzle from a fuel can to twist it, Bernstein's blood had soaked the ground and Sam's could not detect a pulse. I couldn't find a stick, Sam's recalls. There was nothing around but grass and the bag from the Humvee only had bandages and things. And that right there is a excerpt from the Baltimore Sun, March 6, 2005, article written by Robert Little, where he exposed the fact that a lack of a $20 tourniquet was costing the lives of American soldiers and Marines. And Lieutenant David Bernstein was a heroic guy and apparently was a complete stud. Valedictorian in his high school in suburban Philadelphia, fifth in his class at West Point. His his soldiers talk about him. Um, They said things like, it was an honor to be your RTO. You're my hero. You were my hero and you still are. One of his soldiers said, I was with Lieutenant Bernstein when he died. There was not one person at the time that was not positively influenced by him. He was never too busy or important to talk with privates. He had a profound impact on me as a soldier and a man. So, he died in that tragic situation, but his death was not in vain. And his sacrifice increased the military's urgency to get the proper training and equipment to everyone on the battlefield. It helped bring 
tactical combat casualty care, what we call TCCC, more broadly to soldiers, sailors, airmen, and Marines. And by the way, the innovation of TCCC came initially from a former SEAL officer who became a doctor and who worked at the Naval Special Warfare Biomedical Research Program and wrote an article, I think it was in 1996, he paired up with another army doctor and they wrote an an article called Tactical Combat Casualty Care and Special Operations. And this article set the stage for a paradigm shift in combat trauma treatment. And by the way, he briefed and approved that, or he briefed that innovation of TCCC to the leader of the Navy SEALs, which was Admiral Tom Richards, who's been on this podcast. And Tom Richards had been wounded in Vietnam and rescued his own wounded men in Vietnam. And he made TCCC the standard medical for, for medical treatment in the SEAL teams in 1997. And eventually from there, it spread to all special operations. And then, albeit too slowly, eventually to conventional units. But TCCC training and the medical equipment, including squared away tourniquets, eventually became standard issue and absolutely saved thousands of lives in Iraq and Afghanistan in the next 15 or 20 years. But those lessons are not just for military personnel. This is something that everyone should know about. Everyone should understand that a little knowledge and the right gear at the right time can keep you, keep your friends, keep your family alive and safe. In other words, you have to be prepared. And a friend of mine has made it his new mission to help people be prepared, not just in terms of medical emergencies, although that's covered, but in all facets of life. And in fact, my friend has written a book about it. His name is Mike Glover. He's a former Green Beret, former CIA contractor. He has multiple tours in Iraq and Afghanistan. He's the founder of Fieldcraft Survivor also the founder of American Contingency. He's been on this podcast before, number 291. If you wanna hear about his backstory, go and listen to that one. But he's back with us tonight to talk about his new book, which is called Prepared, and how it can help all of us to be more prepared for life. Mike, thanks for coming back down, man. Thanks for having me, it's always an honor. Yeah. I don't know if you remember as the TCCC sort of spread throughout the military, there was another video, I tried to find it, of a Marine in Afghanistan bleeding out. And this was, I saw that video in a time when we had been taught TCCC and you could clearly see what he needed. It was like a tourniquet on his leg. And and that would have made all the difference. But that idea of being in situations where something so simple makes makes the difference between life and death, the actual difference between life and death, and how that message, it took so long to get out, and I feel like you right now are the, the person that's trying to get this information out to the rest of the world. And like I said, it's not just medical, it's just, it's just survival and life in general. 
Um, what made you decide that you were uh, going to put this put this book together? Yeah, it's about two years in the making. I mean, it's a one of the most difficult tasks. I mean, you gotta, you have to be committed to it, and trying to run a company and do everything else that we're doing, um, it was difficult to say the least. But I, I thought it was essential because the concept for the book, especially with Penguin Random House, which isn't the most conservative, um, which the preparedness genre fits in that uh, somewhat. Um, they're not the most conservative. And so it was hard convincing them of the message. But the idea was to market, and I hate using that word, but that's literally what I wanted to do because that's how I had access and placement to a broader audience. Because preparedness is an equal opportunist. Disaster will hand you your ass the same, and it doesn't care your, your background, your wealth bracket, all of those things. So it's very important for me to say, hey, distill this information into uh, a few hundred pages that allow people to understand what it is so they're not scared of it. They realize that it could fit potentially into their life without being intrusive and then benefit them in being prepared for the future. Mm-hmm. And we'll get into the book. One of the things that I, I've, I said this a long time ago about just training in general. So let's say you're gonna train weapons, you're gonna train how to shoot a pistol, and you think to yourself, well, what are the chances I'm really gonna get in a shootout? Okay, cool, you go through life, you never get in a shootout, good for you. You still got awesome benefit from training to shoot. You get to work drills, you get to work on your on your uh, hand-eye coordination, you get like to meet people and hang out and do something competitive. Like, there's a bunch of other benefits besides just, hey, I'm gonna learn how to shoot in case I get into a gunfight tomorrow. Because if that's the attitude you take, okay, there's a very small percentage chance that that, ha- that that will happen. So maybe I can not do it, but also, what if it does happen? Where are you at? Where's your family at? So all these things, um, just super important. And like I said, to me, I look at you right now as the person that, like this doctor, who was trying to change the way, I mean, the, the, the way that we used to treat people was horrible. Combat medic was just bad. Like, the, I, I don't know if you went through this, but we, if someone got shot, we'd immediately give them an IV. Mm-hmm. We, we wouldn't even be thinking about a tourniquet. It's like, get, get an IV in them, which is the actual opposite thing you should do. All that does is increase their blood volume and it makes their capillaries open up and they bleed even more. It's worse. And that's what we were trained to do. So this guy went on a crusade to get that stuff changed, and I feel that's that's the crusade that you're on right now, which is freaking awesome. So, with that, I'm gonna go and, go and read a little some chunks of this book. Yeah, open it with Jack Carr. <laughs> Jack Carr wrote the forward, and he says this: calamity may appear in the form of a natural disaster, a medical emergency, or a violent crime. Modern societal impulses encourage us to call 911 in the event of any emergency. Someone will be there to answer the call and send the police officers, firefighters, or EMTs to the rescue. Or will they? Will those first responders be there in time to fend off an assault, put out a fire, or apply a tourniquet? Will they arrive after the event to take reports and clean up the mess? As the saying goes, the police are minutes away when seconds count. Whose responsibility is it to protect you and your loved ones? Whose responsibility is it to be ready unless you are a politician with taxpayer-funded 24-7 security? I can tell you the answer. It is our responsibility. 
As citizens, we have responsibilities that extend beyond paying taxes. We have a responsibility to our families, our communities, and our country to be assets, not liabilities. That means we need to train. This all boils down to training. Hopefully, hopefully you go through life and you just train this stuff and you don't ever have to use it. Mm -hmm. That's certainly the hope. when you train for this stuff, and I you go to your site, and I watch what you guys are doing, man, it's so helpful for people. It's so helpful for people to go through any type of training. I just was on Twitter the other day, and somebody was asking me, uh, two daughters, what should I tell them about school shooting? I'm like, oh, f- first of all, send them to some type of training. <laughs> send them to Fieldcraft Survival, send them to Sheepdog Response, get them some kind of training so they have some concept of what to do if something should go wrong. Did you, when, when you were in, did you run training uh, besides training that you ran for um, your local nationals? Yeah, for sure. So I, you know, my team sergeant time, even my time as an 18 Bravo, which I was a special forces weapons guy. So our responsibility was training the team in tactics, techniques and procedures overseas. And um, it was, it was ingrained in me early on, I think even in the infantry as a young guy, that training process and protocol, like you said, is the method to the madness. It's not necessarily the technical skill you're training, it's the process. So it's the understanding of, you know, how do you take in information? How are you prepared to respond and react to immediate versus imminent threats? That whole thing rewires your brain on how you approach life, environmental factors, threats, and I, th- I think I've always been a master trainer, especially in my job in my field, but then getting out and seeing the lack of training in the civilian world, as you, as you described tourniquets. When we went in the military, me and you together in the 90s, um, me on the Army side, you on the Navy side, a cravat and a stick was what we were using to stop the bleed. In the Civil War in the 1860s, they utilized a, a better version of that. It was nearly the same thing as a tourniquet, and then we got away from it throughout warfare, and many people paid the ultimate sacrifice because of that lack of really paying attention, in Vietnam especially. So it wasn't hard to see in civilian life all of the gaps, because there's so many, uh, especially culture. I mean, you have a culture here um, in San Diego with your gym, with MMA. That is like the foundation for all the things that we're talking about, but that's training. They're training to do something that's difficult, working with stress factors, and they're building resilience. That's all that training is. A lot of guys gravitate towards guns because guns uh, shoot, move, communicate, cool. But all the things, stop the bleed, mindset, resilience, they're all equally as important. I mean, statistically, a lot more of it like stop the bleed, you're more likely to use than drawing your pistol in a gunfight. But if I told a gun guy, hey, come to our canning and jarring course, how would that work out with you? Like I, I'd have to make that, that jar black multi-cam for him to show up <laughs> in order to do it. So it's, it's, it's always been a passion of mine for sure. I had uh, the chief operating officer at Echelon Front, a woman named Jamie Cochran, and she was moving across the country and her husband was help, you know, getting stuff loaded up in the truck. He was loading, I think it was a mirror, mirror broke and cut his arm like severely. And she had to get, she had to get the tourniquet and put the tourniquet on and 
you know, like I'm pretty sure it saved his life. Um, you know, like that, that again, who expects to need a tourniquet on a Saturday afternoon when you're moving your household goods? Like this is not a normal thing. And yet without that, you know, he's bleeding out. Like you cut your artery in your arm and it's going to take 15 minutes for an ambulance to get there. You're dead. Yeah. So this stuff applies for everyone. Um, any this stuff can happen at any time. Uh, I'm glad you're putting it out there. You say in the book, I'm going to push a little bit. Principles of modern preparedness are divided roughly into two parts: the mental versus the physical, the internal versus the external, the intangible versus the tangible. A resilient mindset, proper planning, situational awareness, and good decision making compose the first half of these principles. This is the mental, intangible side of preparedness. It's the piece you can't buy, you can't hold in your hands. It's the piece you have to build. These four elements are about getting and keeping your head in the game if and when things go bad. The second half includes principles regarding everyday carry, mobility, and homestead. These are the tangible tools and assets that you can imagine as the set of concentric circles of physical preparedness. They constitute the things you will need on your person, in your vehicle, and around your home to be confident that you won't just survive a catastrophe, but that you'll thrive in it. So this is how you've broken it down. Sort of like what's your mindset, and then what are the physical things that you're gonna do. Pretty simple, straightforward way to break things down. Uh, You have a section here where you talk about Solder City, and you had a scenario unfold where you guys almost got a little little blue-on-blue fratricide from overhead cover. What went down with that? Yeah, so it was a joint op. It was actually involved the SEAL team that ripped out with you. Um, and we were doing a hostage rescue in Solder City. Uh, there were indige that were part of the hostage um, located in the middle of Solder City. We were actually set up in containment on the, the basically from, uh, if people are familiar with Solder City, they would understand this, but it was set up like a baseball diamond. So from home to third base, we set containment with tanks and Bradleys. I don't know if you remember this, but during that time period, Task Force was using Team Rock, mm. which were Brads and tanks, to infiltrate the location. In fact, one of the reasons we started utilizing that is because I believe three SEALs, it might have been two SEALs and a support guy, were killed by an EFP going into Solder City. Uh, I saw the vehicle um, uh, post it happening, but it happened on your ro- you guys' rotation, I think. And when that all that stuff unfolded and all these things were happening, we had to come up with different strategies, including using tanks and brads to sec outer quarter under containment. And th- in a nutshell, hostage rescue goes down with the assault force. Me and another sniper are co-located with the big army because they're the ones who have the tanks and brads to liaison. I have an RTO with us that's an assault force uh, RTO. And as we're communicating back and forth, what turns into what's what typically was going to be a hostage rescue in and out unfolded into mighty militia responding in this big gunfight. It was hard for them to break contact off the assault force X off the objective. And so we were taking all their bad guys that were pouring into us and their QRF that were pouring into them. We were dealing with them. Uh, the tanks and Bradley certainly were. So we were in a position on a third story building that as this D evolved, it certainly did. Uh, we got to the point where the sun was coming up and, you know, Solder City, like that's the worst thing that you could do unless you're Chris Kyle during that deployment because he was he was cleaning some stuff up in Solder City during daylight hours. When that went down, we had to figure out a way to support them 
as they exfilled, except we were pinned down in our location. At one point, you know, airburst RPGs, mortar rounds impacting around us, um, direct machine gun fire on top of our position. It was it was the closest I'd been, and the longest version of it of being killed. Like I've had close calls that were instances and it's over. This was like, dude, this is not going to end, man. Um, and it, it it was ugly, but it was it was super engaging, and I learned a lot about the incident. The the harrowing part of it was an F sixteen, which uh, I talked to you about. Um, it was it was a Navy F. I think I said it was Navy F sixteen, but it, the Navy was controlling um, an F sixteen. Got it. And it was an Air Force bird, and that F sixteen was in orbit, and we had a controller on the ground with the assault force, and in my position at an RTO, except he couldn't make comms. We were hearing comms, but we couldn't transmit comms. And so I'm like yelling at my RTO and he couldn't do anything. And I'm like, dude, this is impossible. And that bird comes out of orbit. And we hear the call that he identified bad guys on a rooftop. And we're like on a third story building. I'm thinking, and I got a machine gunner uh, from the big army from 4th Infantry Division killing bad guys on the back end of this. So if we give up this rooftop, the brads and tanks who are, you know, vectored into the gunfight with big guns are not going to see these bad guys come up behind them. So it was imperative that we maintain our position. As this started uh, to unfold, this bird comes out of loiter, and my RTO is like, I think he's coming out of loiter for us. And I'm like, oh, no. Oh, no. And so we're pinned down. I grabbed a VS-17 off my kit, and I had the vehicle version. When I was in recce and snipes, I always carried the big version because I'd heard the the horror stories versus the patrol cap where you have a piece (laughs) of VS-17 that's big. And so I low crawled out to the middle of it and opened this thing up. It was the size of a car. And the 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 fast mover came down and then pulled up and then w- strafed the road that we were on with the tanks of brats and as he turned he popped his flares or his his uh what are those surface to air missile flares to basically track oh, yeah, the yeah. heat yeah the, he, uh, yeah what they're called he popped They're those. flares yeah and then he went up into the sky we all thought we were going to die and when i when i when i got back um my sergeant major um Pat Meffert at the time was my sergeant major. Uh, B23 was the CRIF sergeant major. He was pissed. And he actually called me out for the Navy. And so Green Berets and Navy in one room doing an AAR, and he calls me out by name. And and luckily the combat controller, I think he's a 2-2 guy, but the combat controller was like, hey, sergeant major, that's not how it went down. And he clarified. Because sergeant major was like, why would you guys occupy their third story? And I said, hey, we did that because we had to flex and adapt. Sitting in a Bradley in the middle of a gunfight, supporting an assault force, we couldn't see anything. So we went to the third store. We made a call, went to the third floor. He didn't question that, but he questioned like, you guys almost got killed. Luckily for us, the bad guys that guy was tracking wasn't us, wasn't our position. And when he came down, he identified the VS-17 and the combat controller cleared him to come down out of orbit to do a, a show of force, to basically lull the gunfight, which allowed us to get into the tanks of Brad's and exfil in the middle of, the, uh, in that time, mid-morning. So. The sum up of that experience in Sauter City was was a fascinating business question of mine, which is when you start a business, you try to solve a problem. And I identified in civilian life because I was now a civilian and I realized civilian life sucks really bad. It's not great compared to the communities that we came from. There's no camaraderie, there's no culture. That the, the big question for me was why do operators go into harm's way intentionally? Like, if you showed up for a job interview 
And the guy's like, so check it out. You got the job. In 30 minutes, you're going to load an MH60. We're not even going to have doors on it. You're, you're going to hang your feet off of it with your buddies. You're going to go into combat, and you're going to land on top of the foreign safe house with the bad guys pouring out of it. Oh, by the way, they have machine guns, suicide vest, and they want to kill you. You would be like, yeah, that, I don't know about this job. But we sign up for that, right? <laughs> De- deliberately, intentionally, that's what we want. And then we do that job, and statistically, we come out on top. So I'm like, how the hell does that work? And if I told, if we told most people that, they would come to us and say, oh, it's shoot, move, communicate. You guys could shoot and move like the best of them. And then we would go, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. But that's not it. That's not what we're talking about. It's everything back to the roots of who you were when me and you were studying different versions of it. When I was reading Marine Sniper and I was setting up with a BB gun on pigeons, like I was in Vietnam killing bad guys as a 10 year old, right? So when, when you look at our paths and you look at all the protocols, what it is, is it's everything. It's culture, paying attention to detail, contingency planning. It's, it's all the things that we used to take for granted and didn't understand that we were immersed in it. Like physical fitness, it wasn't going to the gym, drinking the shake, flexing in the mirror, taking a picture on Instagram, and then getting back to whatever your daily life was. It was like we lived that. My guys would be like, um, "Mike, we're going to meet you at the gym, or meet you at the. Uh, uh, we're doing a gym six thirty to nine thirty, and then we're going to go to the range." I'm like, "No, you're not. You're going to get full kit, and you're going to run to the range." Like, what? The range is like five miles away. Like, that's perfect. Like, oh, Roger that. That's what we do. So it's all about. All of those things in culmination, which create a culture, and the truth is civilians don't have that culture. And my job, my purpose, my mission now is with Fieldcraft Survival, developing that with them. Yeah, there's a, it's sort of like you, well, I don't know what a good example would be, but you just grow up and you have these skills that just seem normal. You know, they just seem like, well, of course this is going to be, well, of course this is what we're doing. Of course this is how it's going to go. And then you get out and people don't, don't have those baseline skills mm-hmm. and they haven't been put in these pressure situations. And so that can be, um, it's, yeah, it's definitely, it's definitely strange to think about to grow up like you and I did and just be immersed in that. And then, but no one else is. I mean, that's so abnormal. Was it one percent of the one percent of the American population has military service? Mm-hmm. That's not a lot, man. It's not a lot at all. And you think about all the benefits that we take for granted of of doing that, like whether it's just getting knowing how to walk with a rucksack on, to being in pressure situations where there's loud noises and you're not freaking out, like all those things that we just, it's just totally normal for us. Mm-hmm. It's not normal for 99%, literally yeah. 99% of the population. Yeah, the, the, what I've discovered in all those things, and we did this, we called them gates. You know, we, we went through blocks of instructions that had all of these gates that dumped people out, right? Like I, I was a JTAC, I was a sniper. I did, I think besides dive, besides combat dive school, I went to every damn school the military had to offer. Every single one of them. The cover course, JSOX, TSC course, like every single thing I could get my hands on, I went through. But I remember the, the feeling and the process. Like, Mike, you're going to this course. Okay, what attrits the most people? Well, in week two, during the JTAC course at SOTAC in Yuma, this this gets everybody. Like, okay, all right, that's the focus. Like, so I have stress, stress, I have pressure, 
I go in with a good mindset. I have to study. I have to hone my skills. I have to hone my craft. And then I come out of it and I di- I'm different, right? I'm more resilient because of that process. That was our entire life. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, like people go, oh, you went to combat, you went to war. It's like, that was half the battle. The easy battle was going to war. The culmination exercise of what we did was easy. That was the fun part. The hard part is all the things you have to do to get there, and it's a constant cycle. So most guys who like look at a Navy SEAL or look at a Green Beret, they go, I want to do that. They think they go to selection, they get selected, they get their trident pinned to their chest, and it's the end of that. Now they just do the thing. You're constantly working and exposing yourself to doing the thing. And so that culture is completely different than any world that exists. And it's like the closest thing to the Spartans, right? And when you get through that and you realize the benefit of that, when you communicate and and do so in a tactful way to a civilian and they get a little bit of that, they lose their mind. Cause they're like, oh my God. And I already know, cause I walked through here and your gym has it. When there's guys, like there's a dude like in the mirror and he weighed himself and he looked at himself in the mirror and the dude was ripped up and then he flexed in the mirror. <laughs> and I'm like, that's right. You're breeding warriors here. So we need to breed more resilient human beings that are more capable and more prepared. Yeah, there's, uh, I used to, I, I, what I try to simulate was there's different kinds of stress. And one of the types of stress that we would get in the military is like, oh, your uniform is wrong. Or like when you're going through boot camp, your uniform's messed up. There's a certain level of stress. And even going through like CQC training, hey, you were too far off the wall or you penetrated too deep or you didn't penetrate deep enough. Like there's stress where you know what you're doing is wrong. You don't wanna look like an idiot. You're trying to do the right thing. And that does create a stress. And some people freak out with that kind of stress. There's also stress. What I tried to make stressful when I was running training was this is freaking mayhem. And if someone doesn't make a decision, everyone's gonna die. That's the kind of stress that I try to put. It wasn't a technical stress, it was like a situational stress to lay down on people. And it's actually, I think both of those type of stresses produce a benefit. You know, whether it's just stress from people yelling and screaming at you because you did the wrong technique at a certain time to the stress of like, oh, I need to make a decision and there's total chaos going on. And those stresses are both different. They both produce benefits, and that's why I think the military provides both of those type of stresses to to people to make them more resilient. Yeah, you're con- we're constantly immersed in stress, and that's a good thing because you become conditioned for it. I, I talk to people when I when I talk about these preparedness seminars. I talk to them about the detriment of stress, and and very few people have seen the detriment of conditioned for stress. You've seen it before. I know you have. I've been standing. I remember standing on a hit once and we, it was a suicide uh, bomber and all this stuff and, and it, it was melee. We had uh, um, little birds raining down brass on us because they're marking our position and they're using us as the friendly forward line and all hell is broken loose. A V-bid just detonated inside the carport and at one point during the gunfight, there's a lull because everything's on fire. All the bad guys are burning in an open field and I look to my right and the, the little bird's still doing gun runs and there's brass raining down on our helmets. And I look at all the guys and they're all standing just joking and hanging out. And I'm like, can you guys at least take a knee? I mean, you ever heard of grazing fire? Like take a knee, we're in an open field. And they're like, oh yeah, like, we should probably take a knee. So there's like a detriment, uh, which is a far right side, but most people don't know that bandwidth. They've never seen how they potentially operate. And I think it's a detriment of training period. 
Because you get a lot of guys who on flat ranges, run and gun, it's choreographed and they fall in love with themselves. And I often get these guys come into our training courses and they do things like, I don't know, like drawing the pistol, shooting the target and then bringing the gun back in retraction. And I say to them, like, why are you doing that? Well, what they're really doing is they're resetting the rep. I'm like, in a combat situation when you're engaging the enemy that you just shot, you're resetting the rep. There isn't a rep to a reset. You need to stay engaged, conscious to understand what's going on. And most people don't understand how that works. So there's a technical expertise. There's a technical understanding because it's displayed on social media, but there's no context. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of what we're doing is trying to take that, like you said, low grade and high grade stress, introduce that to everybody, and then show them they can operate cleanly. They don't have to be operators, but they can operate cleanly somewhere in between if they have that understanding and stress. Yeah. Uh, just, to, just to bring in everybody, not just combat here. You say in the book, we like to think about combat and catastrophe as distinct ideas, as different things, but qualitatively, they're the same. A malevolent force that is trying to kill you, check. Surround sound chaos and uncertainty everywhere you turn, check. Sudden, violent, terrifying incidents that can create lasting trauma, check. Acts of God's or of madness that defy explanation, check. The only difference between combat and catastrophe is that combat is a choice while catastrophe is something that happens to you or around you. Regardless, the only things that can equip you to respond to either that can insulate you from the fatal consequences of either that you can set up and thrive in and after either are the pillars of preparedness. And then you go on to say in catastrophe, you can derive the same kinds of benefits from sufficient preparedness we get from them in combat. When you remove the tactical military layer from preparedness and strip it down to its foundational elements, it becomes clear as day that an integrated sense of preparedness can help any person out there prevent, survive, and overcome any kind of disaster they might face. In this book, I'm gonna show you how. And regardless, as I said earlier, if you are prepared and you are doing things that are making you more mentally resilient, you could never face any kind of catastrophe ever and your whole life is still gonna be better. You're gonna get better at everything that you do. You're gonna be better at dealing with some employer that's freaked out or employee that's freaked out. You're gonna be better when some you know, uh, client comes in and is yelling and screaming or a customer comes, like all these things, you're gonna get better at all of them. Mm-hmm. So this is just an upgrade in life, regardless of whether you, and we'll get to some of the ignorance and, and arrogance that people, one of the excuses that people have, we'll get to that. but. If you're not now thinking, you know what, I, I really live in a gated community and there's nothing really like this is gonna happen, cool, good, but you can still benefit from this. And then in the off chance that something does happen, you'll be even more prepared. This is, like a, this is a win-win across the board. It's what it is. Uh, catastrophe is an equal opportunist. It doesn't care about your personal wealth or social status, your religious convictions, or how nice of a person you are. Catastrophe doesn't operate or execute on timelines and constraints. It doesn't have an objective or a goal outside of turning your life into complete and utter chaos. The question here is, are you prepared? Are you ready to be confronted head on by the worst day of your life? In preparedness, it is often said, mindset is everything. You hear that phrase a lot from those who have built a business around the idea of improving your mindset. What I've often found is that so-called experts don't have any tangible advice for improving mindset. Like how do I actually make my mindset better and what is mindset in the first place? Let's start off by answering these basic questions. You say a little bit forward. When I talk about having the right mindset, and by the way, I'm just skipping through like reading some highlights of the book. The book is, there's so much more information here. I'm just gonna hit some highlights, get the book so you can get all these details. Fast forward a little bit. When I talk about having the right mindset, what I'm referring to is resilience. 
having the ability to withstand the initial shock when catastrophe strikes, and then having the wherewithal to respond in a timely, constructive manner. A resilient mindset is everything, because your ability to withstand an acutely traumatic event and respond to it may very well mean the difference between life and death. It doesn't get more, more conclusive to that than that. Uh, example I like to use a lot. If you do jujitsu, you are used to people grabbing you manhandling you, trying to throw you down, like you're used to human physical rough contact. If you don't do jiu-jitsu, you're not used to that. So if you're out in the street and someone grabs you and you do jiu-jitsu, you immediately are comfortable with it. Like I am so comfortable when someone grabs me, I, I get a, I'm get smiling right now, I get a smile on my face. When someone grabs me, it makes me a little bit happy. <laughs> You know, because I'm like, oh, I get to do my thing. (laughs) If you're not used to that, you are going to freeze up, and we'll get to that whole thing. The conditioning, the mental conditioning that you get from that, from being in that environment on a regular basis is going to make you prepared to act that much quicker. Well, it's the same thing when shots are fired. It's the same thing when there's an explosion. If you don't have, if you've never been through that before, if you're not prepared for it at all, it's going to take you out of the gate. It's going to take you three seconds or five seconds just to freaking comprehend what's happening and get your, if you're lucky, you'll be able to get your body to do something in three seconds or five seconds. And sometimes it's, it's minutes. You know, sometimes people just completely lock up. I've seen that before where I'm looking at a guy like, dude, get move. Hey, push forward. They're not moving. Mm-hmm. And you got to go up and physically get them out of the way because they're not moving. They're frozen. So getting that mindset, it takes a little bit of practice. Getting that resilient mindset where you can actually make something happen. You have to put yourself in those situations. Um, and you go into that here. You talk about the nervous system. You talk about voluntary movements are guided by the somatic system, which are made up of sensory and motor neurons. Neurons. Yeah, I mean, don't get scientific on me over here, Mike. <laughs> Whether you realize it or not, you have conscious control of all the movements of the somatic system. Uh, the autonomic system is best understood in two parts. Sympathetic nervous system, the SNS, and the parasympathetic nervous system, the PSNS. The sympathetic nervous system governs your fight or flight response to external physical threats and acute physiological or acute psychological stress. This is, what's important about this stuff is understanding what's going on inside your body is gonna make it easier to recognize that it's happening, give you some ability to get control of it, detach from it a little bit, and that's why it's important that you cover it in here. Um, Whereas the SNS controls the fight or flight in this capacity, it is said that the PSNS governs the rest and digest. So you got your PSNS, is working all the time to to digest your you know food. You don't have to think about that. Um, but the SNS controls fight or flight. So this is like when when some shit's going sideways. You got some examples in here, and you, you talk about this. Um, if you're reading this book, there's a good chance you or someone you know has experienced a traumatic event and discovered in real time that the disconnect was too wide and the delay too long. You neither fought nor fled, at least not quickly enough. Maybe you froze. And this is something that's, I don't know when they started talking about freeze. Fight or flight, freeze. That's another one that they added in. You know when they added that in? Yeah, it's, I mean, there's there's controversy over that even statement of the freeze component, but huh. it's recent. It's a couple last couple of decades they've added that in. Also, some people don't believe in the freeze. No, because, uh, there. Well, I mean, there's, there's a couple components. One, 
there's a, like you said, we're resting and digesting. We're just hanging out. I, I got more energy from this drink, uh, this Choco Go right now, which is great, by the way. Um, I, I, I intentionally sometimes take this. When I was a team guy, we were talking about team guy stuff uh, before we got on the uh, podcast. When I was a team guy, my heart rate was in the 30s, so 37 beats per, per minute. Uh, at, at a bigger size guy, it, it was, I had good cardio. And I had to take things like this to activate and keep my system going. Because at a rest and digest phase, you're sluggish, you're slow, your brain's not cognitive, you're not working. But when you start to elevate that Yerk, I've always said Yerk's Dotson, it's Yerkes Dotson curve of performance is with an elevation of a measurable beat per minute. That's typically how we regulate it or how we measure it. When you elevate to 120 to 150 beats per minute, you start to see results and performance increase. So that's not a necessary shift in your central nervous system. But what people don't realize is if you're not conditioned for stress and something happens, like you're about to hit the deer, you almost hit it and you feel that surge of cortisol and adrenaline, that's you shifting from a rest and digest, just hanging out, chilling, to shifting to a parasympathetic nervous response, right? So when you when you think about these things, uh, parasympathetic, I'm sorry, parasympathetic to sympathetic, when you think about this fight flight response, it's a mobility tactic for the human body to survive under I would say ancestral and primal conditions, right? It's not a very good modern tactic because back in the day we were hucking spears or running from the saber-toothed tiger, that was beneficial. That now has changed because of the introduction of technology. So even if I have to dial 911, and people have seen this, if you've been in a fender bender and somebody is speaking really loudly because they're really stressed and they don't know what to do and they're almost in a fight or flight response, nearly probably at 150 beats plus per minute, they are being overwhelmed by the environment. And so they're in a sympathetic nervous response. The problem is we are not conditioned nor have we correlated to the environment in time. So what I mean by that, but our, our mechanism to measure these things in the environment has changed. So when you spend 99% of your day on your cell phone in a cubicle, not walking, not moving, not exposed to environments, your ways to deal with stressors change. So now you see people who are in traffic in San Diego literally road raging in a sympathetic response, clutching the wheel, smashing their head on the steering wheel because they are literally in fight or flight. Now, the problem with the, the freeze component is, the freeze component is a tactic, but if we take a sympathetic nervous spike of cortisol, norepinephrine, and it increases performance and we freeze, the benefit is to evade capture or evade detection or evade getting, a, getting attacked. That's beneficial in the moment, but there's a different component on the back side of that. That, that, by the way, is called hyperarousal because we're hyper-stimulated. When you look at on the back end of that, there's actually a, a story that I talk about in the book uh, about Virginia Tech. Mm. And the moment is tragic. This was uh, first documented by Amanda Ripley in the book Unthinkable, which is a great book. But Amanda talks about how one of the students in the classroom, if you're not familiar with it, Virginia Tech was a mass killing where 31 students were killed most of them in one building, most of them in a series of classrooms where the shooter with two pistols, using one pistol at a time, went from classroom to classroom executing students. 90 plus percent of the casualties that were killed or injured were shot in the back of the head. 
So basically people were freezing in place, except most people identify that as part of the sympathetic response. Hey, these guys went to fight or flight or freeze, they froze, they couldn't move. That is one part of it. What this kid experienced in a classroom where I believe there was 13 students total, nine of them died, he's one of the survivors but he was never shot, is he remembers the shooter coming into the classroom and he remembers contorting his body. And he doesn't know why, but he thought, if I contort my body, he would recognize me as being potentially already shot or killed, and he would bypass me. Now, he, he thinks about that in hindsight as an observation. Likely in the moment, he became hypo-aroused. So he went from this elevation of, oh my God, what's going on, to hypo-aroused, and he shuts down. Now, we, we've seen this in, in, in nature. This is the faint response, the fawn response, the playing possum. And what we've discovered in human beings about this phenomenon is in this particular case, this is proof of it, in this particular case, he said he thought at one point he was shot because the shooter bypassed him. The shooter left the classroom after shooting everybody around him, loaded, which was what he did, that was his SOP, reloaded, came back in the classroom and went through a second pass, bypassed him again. At one point, he had disassociative, a disassociative experience, which is common under this amount of stress. It's actually the same amount of stress that you'll see uh, in children and women in sexual assaults, where they're like, I don't remember, and I couldn't do anything because I felt paralysis or I felt paralyzed. Most of those victims accuse themselves of not fighting, and they live with that regret. The problem is nobody's talked about the chemistry. The chemistry in being hypo-aroused, just like the fawn that faints after the cheetah's chasing its ass, and it just collapses in, in, in place, most, uh, peop, most scientists believe that the reason that takes place is because a healthy animal that's trying to survive would never eat or risk eating a tainted with that virus, bacteria, or even injured potential animal that could affect its survival of its species, right? So when this kid collapsed in place, he said at one point he went to move and his legs wouldn't move. He felt numb and he went, man, being shot isn't so bad. He thought he'd been shot. So he's segmenting disassociative uh, memories. He's going to move and can't move. And the reality is opiates are flushed into the system. Some scientists think it's because um, one for pain, right? Because it's about to get mauled to death. Two, for the transition from life to death to be a little bit easier. And in this case, when he went to move, the opiates that flushed in his system shut him down. So he's no longer hyper, but he's hypo-aroused, and he's basically quit in place. The reason I talk about this in this book is because every single human being has this potential in them. So if you think about what resilience is, it's technically this band of quit that lives in you. I've seen it, you've likely seen it in combat. I, I was in an operation in Iraq with SEALs. Uh, it was a co uh, joint operation. We, me and an indige Iraqi. So it's the I think it's like the it was either the emergency response unit that operated out of Baghdad or the Iraqi counterterrorism unit. I, I can't I can't remember which one. But I was in a ditch. So the Navy, uh, the SEALs that were with us were in a compound. They had just cleared a building, and I was on the outer part of that compound clearing a ditch with one of my Iraqis. And we're clearing it together, and he takes a white light and illuminates the ditch, and we're under knots. And as soon as he illuminates the ditch, 
a PKM machine gunner on top of a rooftop opens up on our position. I fell on my ass and I had a suppressed M4 and I start shooting at the point of origin. And he rolls into the fetal. Um, one of my buddies, uh, Kevin Owens, is on a dual twin 40 or twin 240 machine gun. He opens up on it and all the seals on the compound wall open fire above us. So we now have like intersecting, <laughs> interlocking sectors of fire all over the place. And I'm like, okay, this is standard. Like, get your ass up. Let's go. Let's low crawl back to the uh, the compound. So I call over the net. And I'm like, hey, guys, I'm coming in front of you. They're shooting over us. And he won't move. He is frozen in position in place. But I don't think it was to fight, flight, or freeze. He was so hypo-aroused as a survival mechanism, his body shut down. I dragged his big ass uh, 20 yards to the compound wall, pulled him in. And when I sat him up, I was like, dude, are you good? Like, I, I at one point, I thought he was shot. Slapped him around a little bit. And he's like, Mike, I have no idea what happened. Has no recollection of the memory. Doesn't understand why he shut down. And he's one of my good Iraqi operators. But what people never have recognized before in this conversation is you have triggers. You have triggers typically from trauma that could shut you down. So if you were abused as a child, if you were blown up in IED, whatever it is, that trigger can be initiated. It could shut you down and potentially there's no chance of you fighting anymore because your system, not your brain, your brain has already told your system, now your brain's checked out because your body has quit on you. That is why resilience is so important because the further we can create a gap between that moment in time as a threshold, the more resilient we could be. And I think that line is like right behind that Yerkes Dotson curve and it's like over to the right side of it. You could draw a line in the sand right there and, that, and create as much callus on that as, as possible to get the hell away from it. That's what you need to do. I was thinking as I was reading that story about the kid uh, paralyzed mentally or whatever, paralyzed during that, Shooting at Virginia Tech, I was thinking it it must be that because if it wasn't, imagine how hard he would be breathing. Oh yeah, if he was like conscious and aware and like his body was working, he'd be like, hey, he, he, that, there's no way someone would think he was dead because he'd be going hey, like, like being around scared people. I've been around scared people; oh, yeah. they freaking they freak out. Yeah, you know, and you also get around scared people that they look like they're dead. They don't move. Yeah, so, and the sexual assault thing is a good point in case when you're talking about this because we have a, a huge documented uh, understanding of this, but most sexual assault victims re recollect their experience as it's a disassociated memory. They don't remember a lot of it and sometimes blame themselves because they're like, I don't know, I can't remember. Like, what do you mean you can't remember? Like, you were there. Like, well, their system was shut down. Mm -hmm. What do you mean you didn't fight? Like, I, I feel guilty, I should have fought. You couldn't have fought. Because if you're hypo aroused and your system's flush with opiates and breaking down, you're going through the most traumatic event ever. And it's almost like shell shock, which you know we, we associate sympathetic responses and like losing your, your stuff, your marbles and you're crazy, but we forget there's a whole component of being shell shocked under the most difficult of trauma, where people, they, like you said, they look like they're dead, they can't move. And there's, there's science to back that. And I think that's important for people to understand. We see it in officer-involved shootings that we analyze. We see it talking to first responders, talking to military. It exists. We've witnessed it before in combat. Um, but it's not understood. And like you said before, the more we understand about this, the more we could identify and diagnose our own symptoms in real time when it's happening to us.
Yeah, you go on to say, and this is pretty much what you just said, but in the book you say, um, the one thing that stabilizes every curve that neutralizes or equalizes the impact of complexity, familiarity, and confidence is experience, exposure. The less stress and discomfort you've experienced in your life, the greater the likelihood that you may shut down in a crisis. That's called fragility. The greater variety of stressors you have been exposed to, the more often you have been tested by the unfamiliar or the complex, the more likely you are to withstand a traumatic event and respond effectively. That is called resilience. Uh, You think about what they do in like our selection. They're just conditioning you for freaking mayhem. You're just getting used to it. The first time I ever got shot, I was like, oh, cool. I was just like, right on, cool, here's what we're gonna do. Like, just so used to just dumb shit, getting blown up, you know, grenade sims going off next to your head and stuff like that. You're like, okay, cool. Um, Exposure is the key to building a resilient mindset because everyone, I mean everyone, can freeze under stress, even the most hardened, combat-tested special operations personnel. I've seen it with my own eyes. It even happened to me. So like your first time, you, you go through this in the book, what happened there? So I was in Afghanistan, and Afghanistan at the time, it was during the Operation Red Wings. I was there at, during that same rotation, and it was chaotic. I mean, that, that year was a pretty bad year. 04, 05 were bad years. And when we were there at, in our particular fire, ba- fire base, which is Firebase Naray, which is east of Operations Red Wings, up in the uh, Kamdesh area on the border with Pakistan and even near China and Chitral in that area. It was Osama bin Laden's stomping grounds. That area was known, especially because it was tied into the Hindu Kush for rocket attacks, mortar attacks, all indirect fire because they, they owned the high ground. Our fire base was right off of the river, the Konar River, surrounded by high ground. Now, we had observation posts, but bad guys could walk in and around that area, set up uh, mortar positions and rocket positions. The classic rocket that was used, which is a Russian and Chinese-made munition, it's the 107-millimeter rocket. I mean, it's about this big. A 107-millimeter rocket, for those listening to this, has a stabilizer rear or, or, or front and aft that allow it to be shot off anything. I mean, it's typically shot out of a pod. I think a Mark 21 pod. And the the reason the Taliban like this is because you could put it on a rock, and as long as you have good line of sight, you could lob it, and the rocket would propel its fuel source, and it would shoot, but it would self-stabilize. You do that with most rudimentary rockets. They would just lock, launch and lob into the ground. But this, once it took trajectory, would take that line of sight that it launched off of. So it self-stabilized. It has a kill radius of about 25 yards, 25, uh, 25 meters. So it's, it's lethal, but it also sounds like a freight train. Now, when I went to Afghanistan, fresh out of the Q course, my mindset was like small unit tactics, Pineland, you know, Green Beret and Camp McCall. I'm ready for war in like Vietnam. <laughs> we go to Afghanistan and I'm like, oh, wait, there's no trees. My carbine will do nothing here. You know, I'm like staring at my gun like this isn't the right gun. And we were out on a HLZ, a helicopter landing zone, picking up bottles of water that had exploded in a CDS bundle drop. Uh, this, this C-130 went to resupply us. We had no means of resupply. 
And this dude was a big old pussy. He did not want to go down and fly and nap the river, which I'll give credit where credit's due. The latter version of that, which is a C-130 pilot, napped the earth and like was 100 feet over a fire base and dropped it on top of our bases. <laughs> the parachute didn't even deploy, just blew uh, water bottles everywhere. But this guy lobbed it over the Hindu Kush and they landed and exploded everywhere. So all of our bottles of water, which was our actual water that we needed to survive, was broken up and, and was everywhere. So we got 12 Green Berets and 100 Indige on the, in the open picking up bottles of water, like policing up water. We're out there how in the. Many, how many days have you been out here at this point? This is not long. This is like a couple of days. So you never, you haven't been shot at yet. Never shot at. Um, all simulated combat. <laughs> so I'm sitting out there, and I got my M4 strapped to my back because I'm picking up bottles of water. And the Indians are on the riverside with some of the uh, SF guys, and they're picking up bottles of water. And we hear, I hear, Sew! and I'm like looking around. All the Indians, because they know what that sound means, they start breaking contact. And me and the guys are looking at each other like, what was that? And then you hear, <laughs> booge. And it's like, the, I, it just remembers me like Apocalypse Now where like the napalm hits and they just blast everywhere. It wasn't that dramatic, but they were impacting around us. And I'm like, dude, we're gonna die picking up bottles of water. <laughs> this is not gonna be a cool story. But I remember ref even reflecting with my M4, like thinking, oh man, I need to get on my gun. Except my gun was completely incapable of doing anything, right? That, that point of origin was kilometers away. So... I ran behind a vehicle and I hid. And I remember like, one, I, I went into a sympathetic nervous response. I was probably on the high end of the curve and a few things took place. One, I froze in that moment. It was about three to six seconds before I had to talk myself getting back into the fight. Cause I realized people were screaming my name like, Mike, what are we doing? And I was in charge of base security. Brand new staff sergeant. My job at that firebase with 100 Afghans and 12 Green Berets was force protection for our firebase. It was my entire job. And I'm like, oh my God, I don't even, like, what do I do? So I went into this mode where I started executing all these orders and getting things lined out. A couple of things. One, I screamed everything. And I didn't have your pro on, but I was screaming. And I remember guys, civil affairs guys who had been in combat, who'd been in gunfights, Looking at me while I was screaming at him, going, why are you screaming? And I'm going, I don't know why I'm screaming. And so I'm running all over the place. One thing that stuck out, I actually have the scar right here. It's on, the, on, my, on my hand right here. Um, I ran down to the river, and there's Constantina wire. And I remember blindly grabbing Constantina wire, not even thinking about it for a second, because the guys were on the other side of it. They had used a glove, and they had separated it. They went down to pick up the water, and it was closed. So when I ran up to it, I knew they had to get up and in the vehicles out of the HLZ. I just grabbed it and ripped it open. Didn't feel a thing. Then we got in back into the base, and I actually got on a 50 cal at one point. And I'm on the Mod Deuce, and I'm shooting the point of origin, and I'm letting it rip. No ear protection. When it's all said and done, complete auditory exclusion, which is a sign and indication you're in a sympathetic nervous response, probably on the far right side of it. Like not the side that you want to be on, right? You're 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 in chaos. So all this stuff happens, and I realize, like in the AAR of myself, dude, I sucked. <laughs> like I was not as cool as I thought I was going to be under pressure, under fire, because I didn't expect my first contact to be a 107 millimeter rocket. I mean, if you would if if I could have gave some commands and some orders to Camp McCall, I would have had them using simulators every single op. 
and lobbing them at students because I was prepared for the close contact in FM 7-8, but I was not prepared for this indirect firing capability that was evaporating human beings off the planet. And it, it changed my perspective on a lot of things, including my willingness to stick to a plan because I had a force-based protection plan that put my guys in harm's way because I wanted to prevent the direct attack. Except if I flexed on that plan, they potentially would have been evaporated by a 107 millimeter rocket or, or worse. So I actually had to take a step back and go, man, you're not as cool as you thought you were. This is real. Uh, the stakes are high. And don't be afraid to adapt because you're operating at the speed of war. Yeah. And what's, you know, I'm sitting over here laughing at this story and, and you're laughing too. The thing is, if you take someone that hadn't been through training, oh. that hadn't been through these stress inoculation, that that wasn't prepared, like what you did, look, you're, you're over here kind of uh, uh, critiquing yourself that you took three to sec- six seconds in your first time in combat to like make things happen. That's freaking awesome. Like on a normal standard of a normal human being, that's outstanding. Then you went down, you got the guys back in the compound, like you made a bunch of decisions. You got up on the 50 cal, you started returning fire. That, that, that all is, look, you might not be able to brag about it amongst your teammates. And, <laughs> and they were might, making fun of you. Yeah, exactly. But, you know, you do that in a, in, a, in a situation where there's something totally unexpected and you're a civilian, you, you're a freaking hero. You're a hero if you do any of those things. And that's why, you know, the, the training that you went through going up into that point is so important because a lot of people would have just completely fallen apart. They wouldn't have even got, they wouldn't even need to run for cover. They wouldn't have even run for cover. So that shows the effectiveness of the training. And I, I've got a bunch of stories of guys getting in gunfights or first gunfights that they were in and they did freaking outstanding, outstanding. Uh, my buddy Seth, first gunfight he ever got into, uh, in the Malab district of, of Ramadi, they're getting pinned down. He's sitting next to this major, be pinned down behind a wall. The major looks at him. He's got big eyes and says, "Like, hey, I'll get some guys. We're gonna go to that, flank him from that high ground over there on that building." He goes and executes it, gets back, and the guy's like, "Man, you must have been in a lot of urban combat." And says, "Like, that was my first gunfight." <laughs> Yeah, which is awesome, right? That's awesome. And you know, of course, Seth was like, "Dude, I think I do." You know, he was kind of cr- critiquing himself as well, but that's what this book is about. Is, is and that's what this section is about. How do you get yourself, how do you train yourself and get used to stress so that when stress comes for real, you're at some level inoculated to it? Because like you said, look, you might not have performed to the level that Mike Glover wants to perform to in the first time in combat, but that's still a freaking big W across the board. You get your guys back through the uh, barbed wire. Like you, you, you made stuff happen. That's what we wanna do. What you don't want to do is get in a situation where you lock up, where you freeze, where you completely freak out, where you just don't make anything happen, and that's what this book is about. Um, You say stress training starts by finding the edge of your comfort zone and learning how to adapt along the way. If you start to get overwhelmed and feel yourself shutting down, there are two simple tactics to employ. Conscious breathing and and positive self-talk. Stop. Take a big breath. Hold it. Big breath out. Pause. Repeat. When you feel yourself coming back to earth, start telling yourself, I can do this, I got this. I know what to do. Repeat, say it out loud so you can hear it, not just think it. It might sound a little woo-woo, like we're in a meditation class or a yoga retreat, but it works. I know because it's exactly what I did as I hunkered down after that 107 millimeter rocket exploded. I took a couple deep breaths, 
told myself, Mike, you got this, you know what to do. Six seconds later, my head was back in the game. Not only will you reap the benefits of the off-gassing of carbon dioxide, allowing oxygen back into your brain, but the conscious thought of breathing will plug you back into reality. Being able to pull yourself together like this under stress is of utmost importance importance it is at least as important if not more so than knowing exactly what to do in a crisis because in the modern world many of the actions we must take in an emergency to save our lives require fine motor skills i had speaking of seth we're doing vehicle iads vehicle immediate action drills out in the desert He's a young platoon commander, and I'm behind him in his vehicle, and he's got four or five vehicles, and they're going through the desert, and vehicle uh, reactive targets pop up, and they start shooting. So the gunners start shooting at these targets. This is just out in the desert here, not, not a real operation. And I'm watching him. You know, I'm like his boss or whatever, so I'm watching him to see what he's going to do, and he's not doing anything, and then he's not doing anything, and then he's not doing anything. And you know, finally, after a while, somebody makes a call, and they kind of maneuver the vehicles out of this contact. And so we, we get back to do another iteration. We get back, you know, while the other platoon is going, we're sitting there reloading ammo and whatnot. And I take a sharpie magic marker and I write on the window in front of him on his Humvee. I write one, relax, two, look around, three, make a call. And I'm like, hey, dude, next time you hear that fifty cal go off. I want you to just follow these steps right here. That's what I want you to do. And he goes, Roger that. So we, we roll out again, and I'm looking over his shoulder, and and the targets pop up, and the shooting starts, and I see him. You can't hear anything, so I'm just looking at him, and I see him go. And I'm like, okay, he got one. And then he like starts turning his head. He opens the door a little bit, looks at the vehicles behind him. I'm like, oh, he's got two. And then he gets on the radio, and he says, you know, strong right or whatever. And I'm like, that's it. That's what you got to do. Just relax, look around, make a call. That's what you're talking about here. You know, when you say to yourself, if you, and it's so important to recognize that this stuff is happening. This is why the training is important. Because if you don't do this kind of training, you don't get used to going, oh, wait, I'm about to lose it right here. I need to freaking settle down, or I have lost it, and I need to give, come back to reality. I talked about this a bunch with uh, Andrew Huberman, who's a neuroscientist. And what I realized is, one of the things that I used to do is I didn't want to sound like a, a baby on the radio. You know, you don't want to sound like you're freaking out on the radio. So whenever I'd get on the radio, I'd be like, hey, we need to build, move to building for 39 right now. You know, like just, I was trying to sound like a fighter pilot, right? You don't want to say, ah, oh, we need to get back here. You're like, you don't want to do that because you're going to catch a lot of shit for it. <laughs> so I'd always just like, all right, run, get in position. Hey, everyone, we need to get to building 47 now. And like, okay, cool. But that's not only helping you sound cool, which is important, but more important, it's helping you relax, it's Mm -hmm. helping you calm down, it's helping you get back to earth. So these things are things that you can train. That's what they are. These are things that you can train and that's uh, critical, absolutely critical. Yeah, that, that as a leader, that competence, which is sounding uh, squared away over the radio is breeding that confidence in the guys, you know, it's and it's and it's addictive mm-hmm. You know, like people want that voice of reason and logic and a lot of these things I'm afraid the, the place that we're at now as a culture and society is the fear, right? I mean, it's one of the things that like I feel in this purpose of all the things that we're doing whether it's our prep life show on YouTube me doing this book all these things that I do constantly thinking about preparedness, it's like I'm fighting a, a battle. Because the battle is, 
I'm fighting for attention against a cell phone or a TV that is breeding weakness in our society. Not only does that weakness translate to a lot of negative impacts, but ultimately it creates a complacent culture and society. So we are more complacent than we've ever been in the history uh, of our country, but also at the detriment of a lot of socioeconomic issues, which are causing every spike in all the bad to go up and all the good literally to go down in all the statistics. Homelessness has gone up, violent crimes has gone up, Um, drug addiction and overdosing has gone up, mental health issues, mass killings, you can name it, it all stems back to where we're at on the scale of of being resilient, and, and we're not as a society. So all the time that when I'm doing these things and I'm talking about all these elements, I'm actually thinking, man, are we winning? And I, I, we're not. In, in the war, we're losing. Maybe I'll win the battle. I get 200 people to show up and think about preparedness, and they walk away and they go, man, we should probably start putting our cell phones down, paying attention to our kids, and actually doing things that benefit our survivability. Uh, not just as like the literal sense, but I mean, building resilience back in our family, like let's start from day one. But I feel like ultimately uh, we're losing the war. Um, one battle at a time, but we're ultimately we're losing. Yeah, that's a horrible thing to think about. If you think about if I'm going out in the world and I'm not resilient, what is my reaction to pressure? My reaction to pressure is go back to my phone where it's safe and I have control over it. Yeah. And so then the more I go out in the world and I feel more pressure, I go back to my phone, I go back to things that are fake and things that don't pressure me and I hide there. And then where am I in life? Mm. Yeah, that's a terrible. And, and when I look at you, like you, you're a good example of this. When you go out into the civilian world, you're an anomaly. And people go, what, the, what is that? What is that? <laughs> what is that thing that this dude is? When me or you, me and you are working together, we're peer to peer. We're just like that's our world, and it's like we identify, we know exactly what that is. But when a civilian sees you, it's like you're an alien. So think about how, from their perspective, how far away in scale you are from the complacency that we are. So now, young men who grow up, they they look at the picture of you doing the thing and think, I want to do that, and they will never in their life attempt anything close to that. Right. So they could virtue signal about it, they could talk about it, they could post, meme, tweet, tweet about it, but they won't actually ever do it. And so a lot of the complacency is built in the technology and the integration of it has created a world where I'm getting the chemical benefit, but I'm not actually getting the tangible benefit. Yeah, that was something that freaked me out when uh, Huberman was telling me that, um, you know, you get a dopamine hit just from saying, I'm gonna go work out right now. Mm-hmm. Like you get a dopamine hit by going, hey, I'm gonna go work out. Th- that you get a dopamine hit right there, yep. and you don't need to do anything else. Yeah. You get a dopamine hit by by you know scanning one more screen on your Instagram or uh, what's it called? Uh, scrolling, scrolling one yeah. more screen on your Instagram. You get a dopamine hit from each one of those. You get a dopamine hit from posting, like you just said. You get a dopamine hit from from talking about it. You get a, a dopamine hit from these little meaningless things. Free dopamine. It's free dopamine. Yeah. And you free, dopamine that you don't earn is freaking terrible for you. I mean, how did we get our dopamine? Like we did it. <laughs> yeah. Like with with no intel by the way. It's like you just you just propelled into it. Yeah, I remember Crazy. guys that would when I was going through basic seal training there was a couple guys I went out with a few times 
and they were telling people that they were in SEAL training. And I was like, that's really weird. Like, I felt like really uncomfortable telling anybody that. Like, talking to girls. Yeah. They're like, oh, yeah. we're in SEAL training right now. And I was like, that seems really weird. And they got the dopamine hit from that. Oh, yeah. They got a little reward, and it was good enough for them, and then they quit. You know, that's, man, think about that on a grand scale of life. Yeah. Like these little things that you say you're going to do and then you don't ever do them. Now they're posting about it and just yeah. lying. That's really disturbing, though, the, the fact of, hey, where there's pressure in the world, where there's problems in the world, and your reaction is, hey, I don't like these things. I'm just going to go back to this complete safe zone that I have control over, which is my phone and a bunch of people that are programming algorithms to make me look at it more. It's crazy. Drawing it, you in. It is a scary world in that sense. And I think when we talk about resilience and preparedness and all that, a lot of this roots in the start point of like, what do you want to be? And if you want to be, um, you know, working through generative machines and AI and 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 living a virtual life, you could do that and be happy, likely, because you're getting the same chemistry. Or you could put the phone down and realize, like, I need to be prepared for a tangible world. Most people aren't prepared for a real world. I mean, there's people who are literally, I mean, 40,000 people a year in this country die in vehicle accidents. And, and that's a real stat. The increase based on the, the baseline of 30,000 is because of cell phone integration, because I'm distracted. So how distracted are we? Where, I mean, I feel guilty for last week spending a lot of time on my phone working because I had a lot of work and I had my kids at the time. And during that time, I'm like doing things. They're doing all these things, and I'm not able to bridge that gap even though they're in my life, in my living room, on the ground, I'm tied into another world, an alternate universe. And it's like, holy crap, just put that down, reintegrate, and build that tangible reality. I mean, I, I, we're doing a rewilding course, but my first version of this is in July. Um, it's already sold out, so I apologize about putting that out there. But it's a, it's a get back to nature. And it, it's based on some of Huberman's uh, information. And there's a couple of people's information that are important. But most certainly, it's about the dopamine. Because if I set the dopamine aside, and like he said, saying I'm going to go to the gym is dopamine. So how much of our lives is inoculated in dopamine? Our entire life is. We're, we're, we're not special. We're very natural, very primal-driven animals. And we want that dopamine. But now we have it at our disposal at any time on our cell phone. How do you get it naturally? It's very actually difficult to get that naturally. So when you unplug technology and you put people into a primal situation where now they have to hear the sound of their tinnitus in their ear because it's so damn quiet, that changes everything. And it takes about 48 hours, uh, according to some guys, including Huberman, I believe, to, to kind of disconnect from that and to kind of reset your brain to get into a position to go, oh, like this is another frequency I'm operating on, like the real world frequency. I'm not, I don't have Bluetooth sucking all of my resilience away through my, through my cell phone. Yeah, that's really just disturbing to think that, I don't know, you and I or us, we didn't have that phone until, how long phones come out, 20 years ago? Like 20 years ago, you had a iPhone came out in 2007, right? Yeah, and that's like really that. when people started to get them. I think the social media part of it oh, was okay. it when the when the integration of like uh, reality and the virtual, like when you could take pictures and send them to the phone. That's when it really Whoa. took off. That was a bad time. So that's all 
at least we know what it's like not to have that analog. We're the we're the last generation of analog Atari players. <laughs> Hell yeah! Uh, awesome. All right, great stuff. I'm glad this freaking world's collapsing around us, but we're gonna be ready. <laughs> uh, you say this. This is the next section is about planning a society we've grown comfortable with outsourcing our lives for the sake of convenience. If the faucet leaks, we call a plumber. If our neighbor breaks our fence, we call a lawyer, then a carpenter. If our car breaks down, we call a mechanic, then Uber. What about when catastrophe strikes? You need a plan. You need to know how to make a plan, which means you need to understand how to plan for contingencies to not only line out how to respond in a catastrophe efficiently and effectively, but also how to shift your actions and adapt along the way. The number one characteristic common to all survivors of catastrophe is adaptability. And the best course of action for becoming adaptable is to have a plan for a series of predetermined contingencies in your back pocket. In special operations, at least a third of the proposed timeline of every mission is spent in the planning phase. When we plan, we never plan for things to go right. Instead, we plan for things to go wrong. What I mean is we expect to accomplish our objective, but we never expect it the way we intended to accomplish it will go off without a hitch. It's called Murphy's Law for a reason. In war or in a fight, there are no rules really, and your opponent is never going to make it easy on you. They're going to booby trap the most obvious attack route and block the most obvious escape route. They aren't constrained or limited by rule of law, a scheduled timeline, or approval from up the chain of command with flexibility and the right motivation. The enemy most certainly is going to make your life a living hell. But it's not always an adversary that creates these obstacles. It can be the elements or your lack of equipment or your own biases and preconceptions. In chaos and uncertainty, these are the forces that often work against you at the worst possible moment. Whether you're at war with yourself, mother nature, an angry mob, you need to be prepared to operate at the speed of war and that requires a plan. And then you get into uh, how to start planning. And one, one thing I liked about it is you go, and again, get the book so that you can actually go through and get this knowledge. Uh, asking questions about your situation is a great way to start figuring out what your plan is going to be. You got a little, hey, honey, what would you do if a guy burst through our door, front door right now? Well, I'd kick his ass. What if he has a gun? I'd take cover, draw my pistol, and defend our lives. Are you carrying your gun right now? No. Where is it? Upstairs on the dresser like it always is when we're at home. Do you think you get it before he got me? Uh, and then you just go through like legit questions. How strong are our door locks? Is the path from the front door to the kitchen too open? Is there a better ideal place to store a firearm? How could we, could we have better security measures in place to give us an earlier warning? How likely is something like this to happen based on where we live? And then you go through course of action development. Um, you just start explaining how to come up with a plan. And again, these are principles that you and I and 1% of the population of America has a grip on, has some knowledge of, but civilians don't have to do this. And that's why this is so powerful. You, you go into some details, like if you live in California or Japan and in cities with a couple days drive of the Himalayas or the Kindahush, you should definitely have a good flashlight, bottled water, and practice running into doorways or ducking under desks. Why is that? Because they are where earthquakes happen. But if you live in Florida or Scandinavia or Malta, you probably shouldn't waste all your time or money prepping for the big earthquake. You'd be much better off preparing for hurricanes or blizzards and heat waves because those will happen more frequently precisely where you live. So you go into these things um, and start to talk about the priorities. It's impossible to be prepared for everything and anything, but it's very possible to be prepared for everything that has any real chance of happening based on where you live. So great information and so basic 
so fundamental. I don't want to call it basic, but it's fundamental to how you're going to make good decisions and how you're going to execute when something goes wrong. Um, you get into some of the details like pace plan, you know, primary, alternate, contingency, emergency. This is something you learned when you were a freaking E4, you know. Um, and yet, there's a dad right now that's taking his family camping and he doesn't have a plan if his cell phone dies. He doesn't have a plan. You know, what's he gonna use for navigation? Oh, I got GPS on my phone, we'll be good. Okay, what happens when you drop that thing in the you know, river while you're trying to get a drink? You don't have a map and compass with you. Like those fundamental things to think through are so important. When you deal with, when you teach your classes, are people in awe of these? Are they super like, I would imagine if I didn't know this stuff and you were teaching me, like, this is freaking awesome. It, people it, must be pumped. They, they're super pumped. It, like, it, we take for granted, for example, planning, right? When I was in the infantry, when I was a private, I went to ranger school, and as an 18-year-old child, I was briefing a warno, warno, a warning order for the first time to a bunch of Green Berets, infantry guys, and I'm like, holy crap, and being judged and critiqued for it. When we think about the sexy things that we did, the only reason we were able to do that one sexy thing, like hitting an objective, was because of all the things that we paid attention to before that, especially the planning. And I had a team start Rick Wilson in third group, and he was a, a great guy. But he wasn't known for like the warfighter team sergeant. He was like the admin team sergeant. You, you categorize like <laughs> I'm two. I'm sure he's going to be super stoked yeah, I know. calling him that I right know. now. He's, he, he's a gunfighter, but it, you, you got you had like two versions of this, like the garrison guy or like the, the combat guy. That still doesn't help, bro. <laughs> no, Come on. Give this dude some love, yeah, dude. Yeah, he, he's been in some stuff. He's been in some good gunfights. But when, when Rick mentored my team as, his, as the Zulu, as the team sergeant, I remember him doing things that we hated. Like he would say, he would say, hey man, um, we're gonna do a course of action development planning session. And everybody's like, what? <laughs> like, yeah, we're gonna do MDMP, military decision-making process. And we would do the whiteboard like COAs and we would do wargaming. And we would talk and we would strategize. And I think like if you made a recruiting video for the Navy SEALs and it was the Navy uh, SEALs making a, a, a terrain model you know, like pouring sand for the MSR, you know, making, you know, taking a GI Joes and vehicles and string them together. Nobody would join. Everybody wants the sexy, but the reason those sexy things are successful are because of the attention to detail and planning. And the most important thing for planning that civilians take away is the template. We have, what I've realized in military guys, I say me, you, Andy, Stumpf, Evan Hafer, we have the structure built and programmed in our heads. So when you tell me something, you say, hey, here's the task. Well, that's the mission. Like, that's the goal, that's the mission. So I line up the mission. And before that, I know the acronym is Sergeant Major Eats Sugar Cookies, which is Situation, <laughs> Mission, Execution, Service Support, Command and Signal. I know automatically, okay, what's the situation? And I analyze it. I am literally breaking down my entire life and planning based on the template that I was that I learned as a, a young infantryman. So when you fast forward that, what it does for you is it gives you a way to program in the most efficient and effective way to be successful. That applies to, I mean, extreme ownership talks about it, the, this military way of planning and shaping your life. If it's organized, um, it's executable. And that's the important metric in all of this. Most people 
buy the gun, they go to the range, they shoot holes in paper, they shoot the bullets through the holes they created in paper, and they fall in love with themselves. And they think that's it, I'm prepped, I'm prepared, EDC hashtag. What they don't really do is go, what the hell do I do in the highest statistical probability of a potential catastrophe where I live? Like, I always ask the classes in gunfighter pistol, everybody here wants to be a gunfighter. I'm like, yeah, everybody. They got their kit, their sexy guns, multi-cam, everything. And I'm like, how many of you, by a show of hands, have a fire escape plan for your family? No hands. <laughs> like, okay, so you're here because you want to get proficient in the gunfight, but what if I told you the fire has a more statistical probability of killing you, which it does? And they're like, uh, oh, maybe I should look at that and make a plan. Like, yeah, maybe you should. Like, we're gonna do gunfighter pistol. It's gonna be great. We're gonna check that block. But let's focus on the basics, and it starts with a conversation, which is not that complicated. And by the way, like, me saying have a conversation, if I said that 10 years ago or 20 years ago, nobody, everybody like, yeah, of course, you have a conversation, like, it's normal. Now think about how many people have conversations in their own home. How many people are willing to talk to their spouse about anything besides what they've checked the block on uh, their entire lives and, and, and actually step outside of that and say, honey, have you ever thought about if we have a fire in this home? Like, ah, we'll get to it later, right? It's like nobody has conversations anymore. Nobody knows their neighbor. You know, like you don't even know your neighbor and you're trying to build um, this preparedness mindset and, and these preparedness tactics, but you don't know your neighbor. We need to do all of these things and it starts with a basic plan, which yeah. is basically easy. Hey, what's cool about that too is uh, a lot of times I'll, I'll work with companies and they'll say like, we wanna do a team building exercise. I'm like, cool, hey, what do you do? Like, what's your job? Oh, we're a construction business, we're a manufacturing. You, you have team building exercises, you live in them. So you wanna do something cool with your wife or your husband, be like, hey, you know what we can do Friday night? Let's come up with a plan in case there's a fire in this house. And let's come up with a primary, alternate, contingency, yeah. emergency. Rehearse it, well, practice it together. Let's, let's, that's like, cool. It's a little team building date exercise. Night. Yeah, date night. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, the difference between your preparedness when you have a plan versus you don't have a plan is infinite. It's just absolutely infinite. So a great place to start. Think about these situations that you could get in and come up with some kind of a basic plan. Uh, This next section of the book, um, I think is one of the most important part of the books. It's called Arrogance and Willful Ignorance Are Your Enemy. I think the second chapter um, in the book, Extreme Ownership, is Check Your Ego. Every good preparedness plan requires good information. You must know your immediate surroundings and the larger environment through which you will most likely have to navigate. You need to understand your adversary, whether it's a single active shooter, a mob of angry protesters, a pathogen, or something like a fire or freezing temperatures. You need to have a good grip on tools and equipment you might be able to utilize, and you need to have an honest accounting of what you can and cannot do physically in terms of stamina and strength and mentally in terms of tough decisions with hard choices and tactically in terms of skills and abilities. Those are some major, major things out there. An honest accounting. This is the dude that's like, well, what if someone attacks you? They're like, hey, when I see red, bro. I see red. Yep, just watch out. I can handle anything. Mm-hmm. Uh, how far can you walk? 
dude, I could walk indefinitely. Oh, really? How, how far can you walk with 40 pounds on your back? Oh, long time. Well, how many miles? I don't know. Oh, you're right. You don't know, do you? <laughs> uh, that's a problem. It's a huge, it's the biggest problem that I run into in teaching civilians, especially the gun guys, right? Uh, here, let me give you a prime example. My basic pistol defensive course, I, tra- I, I do a methodology where it's just train the trainer, right? I, I'm, I'm doing peer-to-peer training. I communicate to my students like their peers, not their subordinates. They're not a group of ranger battalion privates. And so the methodology is different in practice as well because I give them context of why. I define all the why and I want to give them the tools. There's no magic tricks in our technical training. When we get to the component where we did basically four fundamentals of gunfighting, which are very different than fundamentals of marksmanship, that they're honed different, and then we do shooting and moving, we culminate the entire day with a culmination exercise known as a stress shoot. It's common stuff. Except the methodology is, hey, I'm going to tell you what, what I'm doing. I'm trying to elicit a response from you that is optimizing your performance. So I want to put them at about 120 to 150 beats per minute. And that, for the average male with a max BPM of about 195, takes about five minutes of calisthenics on any given environmental factored day. Snow, sleet, heat, it doesn't matter. About five minutes of calisthenics. And that puts them in an optimal window to succeed. Except if you show up and you're not the baseline, my baseline means your cardiovascular fit, your strength and conditioning is reasonable and you have good technical proficiency skills, you could execute this drill that I do and shoot it flawlessly. It's very easy to to attain. Except most of the course, about half to above that, are not fit. They're not cardiovascular fit. And five minutes of calisthenics breaks them in half. And as they're moaning and groaning about three minutes in, at about 120 beats per minute, what I've observed is the brain is telling the body or the body in this case in turn is telling the brain, you're going to die. Like if you, if you don't stop this, you're going to die. It's like you're doing jumping jacks. This is calisthenics. It's push-ups, lunges, air squats, uh, burpees, and jumping jacks. And so I say- oh, Do you have them do one minute of each or something? One minute of each, flexing into the next one right out the gate. And then I do a talk through as I can be communicating to them what is happening. And- most often the response that, that correlates to this is if I say to these guys, you're a mile away, or half a mile away from your kid's school, you just drop them off and there's an active shooting at the school, what are your actions? And most of them will say, 99% of everybody I've asked this question will say, I get out of the car and I run as fast as humanly possible and I hit that front door. And then like, what do you do then? I, I go after, I go find my kid or I kill the bad guy and get my kid. And then I say, and you will get your kid killed. I'm like, well, what do you mean? It was like, based on what you just told me. Like, what do you mean? Well, what you just told me was emotionally driven. What do you mean it was emotionally driven? I said I was going to run as fast as possible. Yeah, so what does run as fast as possible mean? It means you're going to exert yourself physically as much as you can because you think that that's going to save your child. And it's not. The balance is. So your conditioned response is you, you move with a purpose, but at the pace in which you could technically and proficiently shoot, move, and communicate. 
So if you're at 190 beats per minute because you ran as fast as you could, you hit the front door, you'll kill a lot of innocent people and you'll never kill the bad guy. You'll likely get killed. I hope you get killed. I hope your family member doesn't get killed. I hope you do in this sake because I don't want you to live with that regret for the rest of your life. And, and they, can't, they don't comprehend this. I'm like, guys, everybody wants to be a gunfighter, but nobody wants to slow down and understand what, this, what we're talking about here. The baseline foundation is physical fitness, health, and wellness. And if you show up here with $5,000 worth of gun and kit, and you can't do a minute of push-ups, you need to go back to your life and start over. And they're like, well, well, what do you mean? At three minutes, I have grown men complaining, like grunting. And I'm like, guys, understand, that's your central nervous system telling your, your mouth to say something or do something so you can get peer feedback so you can get that dopamine hit because it feels like you're running off the rails and you need that dopamine to keep you on it. And they're like, whoa. And it's like, everybody's silent. I want you to be silent. And I always get it. About three minutes in, people start suffering. And I said, I want you to suffer in silence. And then I get them a talk through. I say, I want you to find your happy place. Because if you don't find that and you don't realize what's about to happen, that you're about to go through a breach point and save your potential child, then you won't make it. And at the very end, about four minutes in, when they're breaking down, which is crazy to say out loud that after four minutes of calisthenics, but this is America. This is the, the, the culture that we're living in. At about four minutes, when everybody's kind of like feeling sorry for themselves, and I say the word, it's like the buh in burpees. They know it's coming. And it's just like a burp, and they're like, oh. I was like, all right, you guys can have that mindset. But let me put it to you this way. If I told you your loved one was in that room, in that classroom, your child, name X person that is your loved one that you love and cherish most in there, would you still have that same response? Or would you shut the up? And all of them are like, oh. And you could see, like when I tell them that their loved one's in harm's way, that emotional side, that barrier where they're, they're, they're distracted because their brain's telling or their body's telling their brain, oh, this isn't working out. It's like, you, don't, you need to stop, you're gonna die. They start, to calm down and they start to hone. What I've realized is through our careers, we've honed. They haven't honed at all because they think it's all about the $5,000 kit and gun. That's what makes them. The experience is what makes them. It's learning and building resilience through hardship. And at the end of it, five minutes, they shoot the drill. When they're done, we assess like who shot good, who shot, who didn't shoot good. I have guys who are like capable, fit dudes who technically suck. They shoot like crap. I have guys who are not fit. They shoot like uh, shoot like crap because they're cardiovascular unfit. I've had guys come back years later, lost 100 plus pounds, and go, when you called me out in five minutes of calisthenics, after I thought I was squared away, I realized I don't know anything and I need to start over. That recognition, that vulnerability, I think out of all the things that we do in, in this stuff that we're talking about is most important because most civilians don't have an institution, peers, or people who love them that are gonna tell them how much they really suck, right? We come from a, a culture where it's like constantly. It's like I was, uh, one of my guys is in here from media, uh, John, uh, one of my, my uh, personal assistant today sent me a, a video of uh, an Asian comedian talking about um, he, he was talking about a love language and he was getting affirmation. He said, your love language is like uh, words of affirmation. He's like, I, I have an Asian mom. Like my words of affirmation was like, my love language is like verbal abuse <laughs> because 
the person who loved me told me, you're not good enough, you could be better. And we come from that culture. Most people don't, and the first time they go through that, they go, oh my God, man, this is life-changing. I'm like, a five-hour session on the flat range was life-changing? All right, I'll take it. But it, it, it turns out to be just the simple things can change lives like that. Yeah, that's a, the, the fact that you can just kind of go through life and no one will ever say like, hey, bro, like, What's, What's up, going bro? On, you, put, you put out some pounds over What's there. Going put on, out some man? LBs, or <laughs> <laughs> you still working out? You and they're know, offended. Like, people will yeah. people will sue over stuff like that. Yeah, that's terrible, terrible. Um, that assessment that you do yourself, the honest part of that, that's so critical. To sit there and think like, you know, I'd be able to do this if I had to. You know, I'd be able to scale down my three story out my three story window because you know I could do it. You need to check yourself, you know? Like, oh, I'd be able to grab my three-year-old and carry her down this ladder. I'm like, really? Mm. Have you drilled that? Mm. <sighs> um, you go on to say the biggest enemies of good planning are arrogance and ignorance. It's the foolish belief on the one hand that you don't need a plan for catastrophe because that will never happen to me. And it's the refusal on the other hand to even consider planning for worst, worst case scenario because you don't like to think about how all the bad things that can happen to you in this world. It's difficult to know which of these is worse or more common, ignorance or arrogance, because in the end, the result is the same. It's the difference between you having your head in the sand or up your ass. Either way, you won't be able to see what's coming or which way to go when it gets there. You talk about the arrogance on the in the book about the Titanic and the Titanic, um, they just thought the ship couldn't sink. And so you say here, arrogance resulted in the formulation of no meaningful evacuation procedures, no emergency response plans, and even less training. On April 14th, 1912, the middle of the moonless night, the Titanic hit an iceberg, and then the shit hit the fan. Chain of command immediately completely broke down. The crew, with little sense of what to do or in what order, made some horrible decisions and cost hundreds of lives. One crew member locked the third-class passengers down in the bowels of the ship until the first-class passengers could reach and board the lifeboats. Other crew members who were manning those lifeboats then only filled them to 60 to 70% capacity because they weren't sure that the cranes used to lower the lifeboats into the water called davits could support that much weight. They were worried that the davits would collapse and the lifeboats would tumble into the sea. They were worried because they'd had little to no lifeboat training and they hadn't been told by management that the davits had been successfully tested at maximum capacity back in port. Result was total catastrophe. Of the 2,224 people aboard the Titanic, only 706 survived. Yeah. Um... As dangerous as it is to rely entirely on infrastructure of society to protect and provide for you, living in denial about the randomness of misfortune and be willing and being willing, willfully ignorant about the possibility that someday you might have to protect and provide for yourself is courting disaster. We all know who people who live like this. They don't believe bad things could ever happen to them. Like arrogant people do, but they believe, or maybe a better word is hope, that they can insulate themselves from bad things by eliminating as much risk as from their lives as possible. Remember, hope is never a course of action. These are freaking societal checks that need to go down. <laughs> um, 
as important as proper, pl- I'm fast forward a little bit, as, pr- as important as proper planning is to a fully prepared life, there are some things you just can't plan for. There's no pace plan for unforeseeable. But what you can do is embed the principles of pace planning into how you walk through the world. There's something magical about planning that doesn't have anything to do with the plan itself, but what you learn in the process of making a plan. Every building you enter, every room you step into, you can casually note where all the exits are. Which one's a closet? Which one gets you outside the fastest? Are there windows? Do they open? If you want to take that a little further, look at your phone and see that the what the cell service is like. Are there fire extinguishers nearby? What about a defibrillator? With a little bit of training and practice, you can do this kind of room and scan for your own makeshift pace plan in less than 30 seconds. This reminds me of always telling guys, you know, out on patrol, when you're doing immediate action drills, like you should be, no, it doesn't matter if you're the leader or not. You should, as you're walking, be like, all right, if we get contacted from front right now, we can do this. I got a little little knoll over there, I got a little building I can get into over there. Or we can probably hit a, a center peel here or a peel right over there or a shift right over there. And you're doing that and it changes every 15, steps that you take you're like coming up with your next plan but damn you seem like a freaking genius when the contact comes and you automatically know what to do because you've already had it in your head you don't even have to assess anything so that sort of uh it's almost like just existing in a constant state of planning and i don't want to get crazy here but why not why not when you walk into a building be like oh cool there's an exit over there yeah hey there's another emergency exit in the back Kind of look in the kitchen. You can see that there's an exit usually in the kitchen. Like, okay, we've got some things going on here. Like, why not do that? I do it in every <laughs> instance in every environment that I go into. And people who don't understand it will think you're paranoid. But I think I'm very deliberate and I'm living an offensive, prepared life. That's very different in mindset because when you want to be complacent because you think complacency means freedom, it's the complete opposite. Because what you're doing is you're setting setting yourself up for failure. And I you know the the the, the culture that we came from the lowest man needed to know the plan, the, understand their role and their mission if they had to step up and take lead. That that is a beautiful thing. And part of all of the things that we're talking about in in this section have to do with the idea that it's not just getting information fed to you. Like we have, we have this relationship with society because we pay taxes and we think building efficiency and institutional outsourcing and models is going to build that efficiency. So if I say I've outsourced my education because it doesn't make sense for me to educate because I gotta, I gotta work. I've outsourced my security because police officers and firefighters, I pay the taxes, they respond to me. I don't need to know that. We've outsourced ourselves into complacency. So if I understand all the mechanisms of the job and the role and the thing, because I'm part of the process, I am so much more prepared. I realized when we had to do, it was called, um, I don't know if the Navy used the same term. You ever heard the term ISOFAC? Yes. ISO facility? Yep. Yep. The first time I got told, hey, we got a mission. You're gonna go to the ISOFAC for a week and you're gonna plan. I'm like, what? How can you possibly plan for a week? And like, you can plan for a week, right? You go into the ISOFAC, there's no guns, there's nothing cool, there's whiteboards, and there's there's terrain sketch models, there's mapping, there's S2 guys running around in Intel, and you're working out all the details of that plan. What I realized in those moments in the ISOFAC, it wasn't about the actual plan as disseminated, 
It was about the process and being part of it. And then when you were part of it, you understood it in its totality. So when something did go wrong, you knew in your head, you weren't just a machine gunner on a weapon system. You understood what was going on. Mm -hmm. That is so important in civilian life because it's, it's about extreme ownership. You don't have any ownership when you've outsourced everything institutionally and you're floating around thinking everything's perfect until the dude in Allen, Texas steps out of a vehicle with a AR-15 and starts killing people in front of you. And then you're like, I hope I get through this. Like hope is not a course of action. I hope that when something like this potentially does happen to you, that you get lucky. I hope you get lucky. But to, to lean and depend on luck is, is problematic to say the least. Yeah, and this this idea of situational awareness and of looking, you know, when you walk into a, a room or walk into a building, you walk into a restaurant, you walk into a store, you take that 15 seconds, this costs you nothing. This costs you nothing and your reaction time is gonna be so much faster than your reaction time. If you if you walk into a restaurant, you're like, hey, there's pretty good cover over, pretty good cover and concealment over in this area over there. Cool, I, I know I can get there. I can get out that window really quickly. Look, there's an open door back there. Your reaction time is like gonna be almost instantaneous. Mm. As opposed to an active shooter walks in there and starts shooting people, you don't even know what to do. Now you're trying to look around while you're trying to take cover at the same time, and it's just a total disaster. It's a total disaster. And when you're proactively thinking about these things, it's just making you more situationally aware. Mm-hmm. In, in the first place. I mean, this is just how you become aware of what's happening around you, as opposed to you walk in and you're just uh, scrolling through your social media and looking at this thing without assessing anything that's going on. It's freaking terrible. Yeah, you, you're more con- you're conscious and you're plugged into what's going on around you. You're, you're simply focused. You're simply paying attention. Let's even break it down <laughs> even more. Just pay attention, and most people don't. My daughter just discovered, I got her this pink iPad. She's three and a half years old. And... The, for the first time, I realized that she's glued to it, right? She's YouTube for kids, right? She's doing, I, I source her content and say, hey, this is what you're watching, right? And I don't pay attention to her. She pays attention to it. The other day, I was trying to walk her from the first floor to the second floor, so going up a little bit of stairs, and she was falling all over the place. And then would instead of getting up and putting the iPad down and like walking and looking at the stairs, because she was so focused on and intent, intently f- uh, focused on the actual iPad, she kept picking it up, kept looking at it, and walking up the stairs and fumbling and falling. God. Our entire society is that. Our, that. That figurative analogy, our entire society is a three-and-a-half-year-old walking upstairs staring at their phone, right? Trying to walk upstairs. It, impossible. And even when they fall, it doesn't stop them. From it doesn't it. stop them. So, so now when you look at like the basic understanding of situation awareness and just paying attention to your environment, um, most people can't do it because they're addicted to their cell phone or they're addicted to diverting their attention because the algorithm has pulled their attention away and they don't realize it. So I'm just asking for people, read the words, read the book, and then pay attention to the environments that you're in. Because like you said, it now no longer becomes self-defense. If I'm offensively and openly and overtly analyzing and assessing my situation, so all I have to do is pay attention in that environment. I'm staged and prepared for anything that potentially kicks off. A guy just asked me this because he was in Allen, Texas when this outlet mall shooter went in, killed eight people, injured 11. And when he went in, 
as soon as he got out of the vehicle, he started dumping people. I mean, most of everybody who was killed was killed on the initial contact. The police officer responded, responded within minutes and winded up saving a lot of people because he had a lot of ammo left. So when he started engaging people, one of the guys asked me, if I'm walking with my family in that situation, because he was with, by himself, if I'm walking with my family in that situation, what could I do if I was in that situation? And I said, there's not much you could do in that particular instance, but it all comes down to your behavior. What are you doing at that moment? Most people in that moment were complacently not paying attention because why would they? They're in America where freedom and democracy and all these good things allows us the ability to be complacent. If you're driving in Libya or the Middle East and you're looking at your phone, you'll just die because <laughs> a dude will T-bone you with a donkey cart. You know, you'll be dead. But everybody there pays attention. Well, if you're paying attention and you recognize things that are anomalies, which we talk about in the book, mm-hmm. which is the spike in the pattern, and you see the guy pull up and get out of his vehicle and you have a fanny pack on and it's staged properly because I carry a fanny pack, my, my company's fanny pack that I design that has pistol access, which I could draw as quickly as I can removing my shirt in appendix carry. Why do I carry that? Because I'm a dad and fanny packs are cool for dads. And I carry my first aid in the same pack. But if I saw that vehicle come up and I'm staged properly, it would take me half a second to recognize it and about 1.25 seconds to draw that pistol and be on target potentially. So there's a time and place based on my environment, but I'm always thinking about the tactical advantage on the up offensive and paying attention. If you're on the back side of that, you're just reacting mm-hmm. and you're too slow. We all know the, 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 the reaction versus action. You're just too slow. Yeah, same scenario. If you're walking with your kids at the mall and you, this is free and it's actually, I don't know, maybe maybe we're just weird, but to be we're walk, weird, just yeah, a reference. Just, but just but get weird then because if you're walking and you're like, hey, um, hey I'm walking down the street. What if, what if there's an active shooter right now? Oh, there's some uh, planners over there. There's a, a some planners. Those are really good cover. I got my two kids with me. I'm literally gonna toss them over those. If we get attacked from them, they'll toss them over. The, this is this is just like internal conversation that you can have at any time, and it's actually really good because if you're thinking, oh, there's some we're walking to the right to our right is some planners in the parking lots over there. We get contacted, got some cover and concealment. That's cool. No big deal. You're not. It's not costing anything, right? You know, you can still be carrying on a conversation with you. I have those internal dialogues while I'm carrying on conversations all the time. <laughs> Right? That's weird. <laughs> I do that same thing, but yeah, that's, but it's it's, like, it's it's necessary. It is, and it's good training for yourself. And look, you know, do you want to tell your kids that? It depends on how old they are, or whatever. But if you're walking, and you're like, hey, there's some planners to our right right now. If we got contact from over there, we we're getting behind these planners. Now, as soon as that guy gets out and you see a weapon, you're in cover. You're not thinking about anything. You're like, oh, we have an active situation and I'm going to take cover. My kids are protected. And in, 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 in like you said, in a half a second, we're done. We're, we're in, if you're not thinking about it, if you're looking at your phone and all of a sudden you hear shots fired because you're not paying attention, now you're potentially getting killed. Your kids are getting killed because you're not paying attention to what's going on. And you don't have any freaking plan whatsoever. You, you walk down the street enough times and think like that, you're going to become mentally proactive as to what's happening and you're going to be a jump ahead by five seconds, seven seconds, 10 seconds if you decide to just lock up and not you know, freeze up like you talked about earlier. So that situational awareness, so important and it's something that you can habitually do. Mm-hmm. It's kind of fun. I mean, I guess, I don't know. I guess it's just what we're, gonna naturally do 
I mean, I guess like a skateboarder walks down the street and says like, oh, that'd be a cool freaking curb to hit and that'd be like cool stairs to jump off yeah. of. I get that too, mm-hmm. I'd do that too. But I think as I got older, it was more like, hey, there's a good covering seal, there's a good shooting position, there's like, let's think of, there's a there's an egress route over there. Like, think about those things, because that's, doesn't cost you anything, it's just situational awareness. It's, you might think I'm crazy, but you're freaking crazy sitting there staring at your phone as you're walking down the street with your kids. You're freaking crazy. So, get some situational awareness. Uh, yeah, you got a whole section in here. Um, we just covered a bunch of it. Mm-hmm. Um, you even talk about, you know, you get technical about how to scan, what you did to scan by grid. You mentioned that stuff in here. You also called uh, Andy Stumpf and Evan Hafer <laughs> two brilliant hunters. My book's now fiction. <laughs> yeah, which I, I freaking had to open up a text thread up with those guys last night. Oh, that was freaking awesome. There was some really good comments. We could probably publish that whole text thread because it was freaking hilarious. Um, but, you know, you do. You get into the details of how to do those things. You talk about five and 25s, like the protocols for checking before you get out of your vehicle. Again, hey, man. Look, if you if if you were gonna call me paranoid or call you paranoid for behaving like this because it was a detriment to some other part of your life, if it was like you you know your kids are like, hey dad, um, look at the tree over there, and you're like, hey, quiet, I'm doing my fives and twenty fives. Like if <laughs> then then I could see people being negative, or you're like, um, hey daddy, can we go get some ice cream? And you're like, negative, there's no cover or concealment in that area. <laughs> If we're talking about that, I can understand people saying, hey man, you need to chill out a little bit. I get it. But this is like all just good, common, internal um, planning that you can do, assessment of the situation that you're in, and it's there's no detracting to it whatsoever. There's none. There's no, there's no negative impact of this at all. It's not making you pay less attention to your kids at all. These are things that you can do without while you're carrying on a conversation. These are things that are take no very limited extra brain power. In fact, it's the, what is it? You only use 10% of your brain anyways, so why not use at least 3% of it to find out where there's good covering and same as you're walking down the street? It's freaking straightforward. Same thing when you go into in here talking about identifying people, watching people. You say, when you take a second to look at the entire list of potential IED indicators enumerated from the Marines FSMO course of instruction, what you notice is just as frequently as they mention things that stand out, they mention people that stand out. People in places they normally wouldn't be. People not in places they normally would be. People doing things that not anyone else is doing. People doing things that they shouldn't be doing. So you talk about how to look for those things. And this is the thing, these are things that anybody, this takes, you know, you talk about some training that you went through. Anybody that Pays attention, we'll notice this stuff. You'll be like, hey, wait a second, everyone's sitting here, uh, you know, in the traffic stop and everyone's looking at their phones. You got one person that's like walking in a very direct manner towards, like, pay attention to that. Everybody can see that if they're watching. Um, you talk about hands and, and demeanor. You've got to watch the hands. This is something you and I have heard a thousand times. And then you close it up by saying, in the simplest terms, your situational awareness and the prospect of your safety are determined by how well you combine surveillance of your immediate surroundings with a scan of the people in that environment to limit the cognitive load of doing unique, location-specific, deep surveillance every time you enter a new space. There's a simple approach you can use that works 99% of situations. Every time you enter a new, unfamiliar, uncomfortable, or potentially dangerous space, let's use a restaurant and a suburban mall as an example. First, get your bearings 
in the environment where the exits what is the most direct path to those exits do does the place look clean do the tables and chairs look as if they're in good condition does the place feel safe these are just things that you can do to be freaking ready next section this is another thing that just human beings gotta watch out for denial is the biggest threat whether or not to take action in the face of imminent danger might seem like a no-brainer it would certainly seem like the single most important factor in determining your survival in a catastrophe but the reality is the bigger issue is whether or not you even accept the presence of imminent danger at all it sounds absurd that when faced with a grievous threat to your safety, you might deny its existence, except almost everyone does it. It's practically a cultural script. We hear a window shadow da- da- shatter downstairs in the middle of the night. We feel the ground violently shake and see the chandelier swinging wildly from the ceiling. We hear gunshots ring out from the office down the hall. And what's the first thing we do when something like that spikes the pattern? We come up with some ridiculous explanation for it that dismisses any possibility of true danger. (sighs) That's bizarre, right? It's a bizarre human reaction. I I think it's actually, I I think it's closer to laziness than I think it's a psychological effect. I mean, for people in context trying to understand what this is, is imagine you're like watching Netflix and you're watching your favorite TV show. So you're in it. You're like, oh, this is this is awesome. I, I want to watch this. Anything that happens, you're you're upstairs. You're watching this show, and you hear a noise downstairs. What's your reaction? Most people hear that and they write it off because they're like, oh no no no, that's just a that's just a cat. Like, honey, we don't have a cat. Like, oh oh, well, it's just, I'm sure it's just something that fell off. It's like nothing happens without something happening. Like it's something you heard that because you need to potentially check it out. And so even in my own life and pattern, I've had to set up an immediate action drill to say whether or not I like it, I'm getting up to check it out and that is going to be my immediate action. And that mindset is hard for even me to get through because I'm like, this is a good show. I got bourbon. Like I got my show, Yellowstone. And it's like, I'm here in this moment. And anything that pulls us away from that is inconvenient. And I think that's the problem with this is denial is not convenient for us, and we want everything to be convenient. I imagine when the active shooter um, who became a mass killer, the 22nd of, the, of, of this year, by the way, uh, on an average of 24 mass killings a year, which is four or more people killed, not to be confused with mass shooting, um, when that 22nd shooter got out of his vehicle and he started shooting, Likely there are people who witnessed that and stared for a period of time in denial, not realizing what they were seeing was real because their brain was telling them otherwise. And that's a problem, more of a problem in a, in a world immersed in technology where everything's a game. Everything's virtual. Everything's fake. I got a POV perspective of playing that game in my mind. This is just part of that game. No, it's real. And those bullets that are coming out of that gun will kill you. And that reality for many people who have never faced that kind of reality, um, sometimes it's too, too, too late. You know, by the time they do react, when you need those actions immediately to survive, it's too late. This goes back to what your mindset is as you're walking, walking down through the mall. You know, if your mindset is you're in la-la land 
and something like that presents itself, if you're in La La Land, it takes you four seconds to get out of La La Land or six seconds to get out of La La Land or 30 seconds to get out of La La Land before you actually do anything. Three seconds of saying, what the heck is that? You know, six seconds of, is it Halloween right now? Is this guy doing, is this, oh, is this the cops doing some kind of a display? Like all those little thoughts instead of being cognizant of the fact that this is the world, bad things can happen. If you have that mindset as you walk down the street, if you take one person and say, hey, this is, if, if I took one person and primed him and said, hey, this is, a, this is the world and bad things happen, walk down the street, that guy sees an active shooter, he's gonna react faster than someone I say, hey, isn't it a nice day out today? That person's gonna have a hesitation before converting reality into reality. So that mindset that people have, gotta think about. Next section here is about decision points. It's called decision point. What are you going to do? That is the question. Everything up to this point has been about preparing you for the moment when you have to answer it. Forging resilience, making plans, building situational awareness. These are the mental tools designed to cultivate quick decision making and help you to take the correct actions when catastrophe strikes. When the thing that you are most terrified of that has brought you on this journey to preparedness has come to pass because when your worst nightmare has been made real and you need to flee or fight to survive, stress will be high and time will be short. You won't have the luxury of contemplation, of second guessing, of wait and see. You'll have to act to go, to move, to hide, shoot, to kill, if that's what it takes to keep you and your loved ones safe. Now, this is the idea you have to think quickly and make snap decisions in an emergency probably doesn't sound revolutionary. You're probably thinking, yeah, Mike, no shit. Except it's never that simple. Most people struggle with decision making. So you go into this um, and you, what you talk about in this, um, you talk about the fact that people are making decisions all the time. And that people are actually good at making decisions. Like everything that you do in life is a decision. You, you talk about a, a guy that was a wrestler and what made him a good wrestler was he got told, listen, everything you do in wrestling is a decision that you're making. You just need to chain those decisions together and that's how you win. And so you talk about that in, the, in terms of survival and pressure situations. Um, I wrote a, a book called Leadership Strategy and Tactics and I talk about something that I did. I was, I was known as being decisive in my career in the SEAL teams. Like if something was happening, I would make a decision. I'd make it pretty quick. I was not gonna freeze. I was gonna be like, hey, we need to get over there. We need to move there. So I had a good reputation of being decisive. But I cheated. I always cheated. I was a cheater. Two reasons why I was cheating. Number one, I was already thinking about what we were gonna do if something happened. So that's cheating. The other thing, when I would make a decision, I would make a very small decision very quickly. And then I would get the feedback of how that decision went and I'd make another small decision very quickly. So as one person, one leader may look at a scenario that's unfolding and think, how can I solve this whole thing? I would look at a scenario that's unfolding and say, what can I do right now that's gonna improve our position a little bit? And I'll do that thing. And guess what? You improve that position a little bit, you're in a totally different spot than you were 30 seconds ago before you strong pointed a building or before you maneuvered behind a berm or whatever the case may be. Making those small decisions quickly, that iterative decision-making process is how you can become decisive. And that's the same thing that you're talking about here. 
making small decisions quickly, and then applying the feedback, because you're gonna get feedback off of your decisions. And then you gotta apply that feedback, oh yeah, this seems like a good move. Wait, I, I strong pointed this building, now this building is getting, now this building's starting to burn. Cool, what's my next decision? Gonna get out of this building, gonna go somewhere else. So that iterative decision making is what you're talking about this book, and it is something that you can get better at. Absolutely, I, th- I think when you, when you say um, decision making, I think often of adaptation. Right, and the number one characteristic in all survival circumstances, which have to do with catastrophe or disaster, is the ability to make rapid decisions or adapt on the fly fluidly. Most people don't realize that's an analytical and trainable component to preparedness. They don't realize, hey, hey, you know, the the one survival psychologist, John Leach, who focused on the study of why people live and why people die when he assessed and analyzed all the information, what he broke down the population it was 10-80-10. 10% survive. 80% are somewhere in the middle, good or bad or indifferent. They make decisions, some don't. And then 10% are at the bottom of the barrel. The goal here is to put you in the top 10%. And the top 10% are good at making decisions. They don't have to be operators. They could be teachers. They could be mechanics. They could be leaders, managers. They're people who are used to making decisions under stress, uh, rapidly and fluidly. And I think that's one of the things that we neglect is how simple this can be where you're trying to work yourself through a difficult circumstance. You don't need a tool of, you don't need a bag of tools. You just need the ability to go, hey, maybe I need to think uh, creatively, or creatively through this circumstance instead of analytically all the time and say, hey, maybe this isn't the best option. Maybe I could do this. That ability is something that needs to be trained and honed. We actually teach a class called personal security where we teach this. And what I've realized in decision point specifically, most people don't know, like for example, deadly force. If I said to most people, what's your criteria to use deadly force? Meaning to make a decision to kill somebody because that's what we're talking about. The person would likely give me legal jargon they would recite something from the concealed carry class. They'd say, well, based on the threat, if they were threatening my life or somebody else's life that I love or bodily harm, I would use deadly force. Like, okay, that's the book answer, but let's talk about what is your personal, ethical, and moral compass telling you, and what is the criteria? Well, if a guy has a gun, okay. Well, if a guy has a gun and he's holding it by his side and looks at you and says, I love you, man, you gonna shoot him in the face? Uh, no. Well, then what's your criteria? Well, if the guy pulls the gun and lifts it on me. So if I look, I lift the gun and point it at you and you, you, you identify that gun, you're gonna shoot and kill the person. Well, well, just tell me. And what I do is I ask the question and people feel the pressure and they're like, well, well, I'm like, I'm just asking the question because what you're realizing with me in real time is you've never thought about it. Like you've never actually thought about when you would actually use deadly force in a situation and use the decision point to make the decision that's gonna change your life forever. When I take, the the coolest thing that I do out of all the things I do is scenario-based training. And when I do scenario-based training, I could have five people from five different walks of life stand up and I walk them through a scenario. Hey guys, you're at an Airbnb, somebody walks in and you see the outline of a gun. If you decide to use deadly force, simply sit down. And that's your commitment to making the decision to take a human life. 
They sit down. One person sits down. Uh, and then the guy walks towards your family who's in a closed room. Another person sits down. And then the person gets in the room and they have a gun. Another person sits down. And then they get in front of your child. They're holding a gun over your child. Another person sits down. And then they hold the gun to your child's head. And then they go to put the th- uh, finger on the trigger. And then they go to press it. And the person's still standing. And then I'm like, what the hell? Oh. And then the person shoots right next to your a daughter's head and then they sit down I'm like well God well what that's demonstrated across the walk and spectrum of life is people have different experiences triggers and trauma different training and every single person has a different uh, answer for when they would use deadly force from the person who's nearly the conscientious ob- objector who's like I'm not going to shoot and kill anybody to the person who's like that person stepped a foot in my door I'm killing him when he's on my front porch Right? You go to Mont- rural Montana, and I ask that same question. It's like, there's a dark, shadowy, everybody sits down. <laughs> I'm like, guys, I haven't even told you. <laughs> like, it could be your wife. It could be like, I haven't identified who the guy is. But that just tells us that this answer or this, this understanding of the use of deadly force is varies by experience because in civilian life, there's not an institution teaching us the rules of escalation and protocol. Like if you're a police officer, it's very narrow. It, like you're like when the person raises the gun towards me and they're a potential threat, I will take that that life. It, as a civilian, it's completely different. Castle doctrine, stand your ground, all these hybrid legal theories apply, and that's important to delineate for a civilian who's like, oh yeah, I I, I just kill bad guys with guns. What well, if they don't have a gun? What if they're beat? What if they're smashing your wife's head off the concrete? You going to do it then? Well, you better be prepared to answer that disseminate that information, how you logically and reasonably came to that conclusion and communicate that to a law enforcement officer 10 minutes after you just took a human life. Like, let's navigate all those things together because that's how the shit works. The the scenario that you talk through in the book like that, which, which is awesome. I was enjoying reading it, you know, the, the Airbnb type thing. And you see this, it turns out to be a kid from mm-hmm. next door that wanted to return the Nerf gun. It's like, okay, you go through that. So you got to talk through those uh, sort of theoretical and then what you have to do is put a simunition gun in someone's hand and put them in that situation and it's freaking mayhem it's total chaos I remember a few years ago they had a like they took some guy that was uh, against the police basically saying the police were out of control and they gave him the simunition thing you yeah. remember this one yeah I do remember he that killed thing. everybody yeah no, he killed everybody his whole he was just murdering everyone yeah <laughs> and he's after he came out of it, he's like I need to shut my mouth. Like this changed my life. Like and and that's by the way, that whole force on force training that we started doing, it, it wasn't very popular in the beginning of the GWAT. Uh, I think likely because we were busy working, but as we started to evolve in in the modern global war on terror, we started realizing what was different than the schoolhouse. Right, you enter a point of domination. You point your gun. You identify the threat. Hands, demeanor. It's a paper target. You raise your gun. You find a red dot. You break shots. That process, which I call the shot process, sometimes takes too long. If there's a guy like depicted in the picture of the paper target is holding an AK-47 pointed at your head, and you step in that corner and you identify. As soon as you identify, you need to be breaking shots in the direction of that. That whole mechanism of raising my gun, aligning on the threat, is completely different than we actually did in the schoolhouse, which is if I throw a shot, I'm kicked out of this. Mm -hmm. I'm not gonna take this risk. 
versus I have the barrel oriented and aligned in, in the point of domination. I haven't even found my red dot. The, the infrared laser, I don't even recognize. I just know it's a blur of mass behind behind it. And I've been in those situations very specifically and found that there's a difference between the flat range and shooting paper and steel that don't react and taking a SIM gun and doing it for real. Last class, Leah Stumpf, uh, Andy's wife, who's a black belt in jujitsu, um, who's a former park ranger, great, great uh, woman, uh, she's helping us with a lot of things related to teaching women and children. When she she had to go through this course because we make our own instructors go through our own training before they could AI AI me or assistant instruct me. She was in a situation where we put her and another guy inside of a vehicle, and they're inside of a UTV. And in this scenario, there's a bad guy, and the bad guy comes up, and I say bad guy because I always say he's a bad guy, but you assume the guy is bad with malice intent or is he because he could be a good guy i just say bad guy as they walk up this guy's rummaging through their vehicle like hey man you guys got money and lee is so nice she's like hey man relax like what do you need what do you need and she's trying to de-escalate and it gets to the point where this guy becomes aggressive and then the guy who's the husband of leah in this scenario who's a student says something off put to the guy as per the playbook, the guy backs up and he's like, man, screw you guys. And he turns around. Leah literally thinks in the AR, uh, she communicates this, but she literally thinks in the moment, man, we de-escalated that scenario. We did a good job. She's already thinking like, check out, because this is, this is how it went. We did a good job. He turns around and in his de-escalation, they reduced her posture. He draws the pistol and turns, and he breaks one shot before Leah could recognize it. Leah, who's super fast, draws her pistol and actually gets three shots off on the guy and, and has barely trained with the firearm, by the way. Draws his pistol, shoots this guy three, three times, and when the scenario is done, we actually got this on camera, her face is locked in position, and she's sitting there staring with the firearm, holding the firearm with locked into shock. And not shock like a bad way, but like shock like she's frozen. And I'm like, okay, in index, in a scenario. And she's like, oh my God. I'm like, Leah, what do you think? And we do an AAR afterwards. She's like, I don't remember drawing the gun. I don't remember everything that took place. The only thing I remember is, man, we did a good job. We de-escalated. This guy was nice. He, he went away. And then all of a sudden there was a gun. I was like, how do you feel? She goes, the difference between me understanding it and now doing it is night and day. Because now I understand all the technical training, all the things I've learned don't apply to what is taking place right now, which is rapid decision-making under stress. And until you've done force-on-force force or simunitions-based training, you don't realize that. And I'm afraid most of the guys that I trade on flat ranges with guns haven't had that experience. And when we do put them in those experiences, they're the guys who are really quick to the draw. And sometimes it's a bad shoot. I mean, we have a scenario where a guy draws, he like, reaches down, and he's drunk and belligerent, and he's reaching in his pocket, they draw pistols, and they're like, show me your hands. It's like, dude, you're not a cop, but okay, let's go through the scenario. And he pulls something out real quick, and it's a cell phone, and they smoke him. Mm -hmm. And I've had guys go, yeah, you know, I had to put him down, blah, blah, blah. I was like, so what kind of gun do you have? Oh, yeah, you know, Glock 19. Like, oh, really? Mm -hmm. Hey, show me your Glock 19? And it's like a Samsung phone. Mm -hmm. Like, oh, like, do you even remember that? I had no clue. I thought he had a Glock 19. Like that, that gap needs to be filled. We do yeah, at Echelon Front. We do role playing with our clients, right? So we'll just leadership role play. Like, yeah. uh, you know, okay, Mike, you're 
you got to get me to do better accountability with my paperwork and mm-hmm. you walk in and you're like hey John Ocker, you know I noticed your your paperwork's not doing really you, you haven't really been turning in on time and I'm like you know what that stuff's a waste of my time mm-hmm. right and so then how do you talk through that and the first time you do it you'll suck and if echoes over here watching we'll debrief it echo will do it he'll be like five times better just in one evolution. Yep. And then you'll do it again. You'll be 10 times better than your first time. Mm. The same thing happens with this. Like, you go through those scenarios, you get so much better each time you do it. We made a really big transition. You know, when I first got in, probably when you first got in too, we were just live fire everything. Yeah. Everything was live fire. Yep. Live fire, live fire, live fire. We were freaking awesome at live fire. But man, those paper targets don't move, they don't shoot back. And that's what the enemy does. In fact, that's the threat from the enemy is that they move and they shoot back. That's the pr- freaking problem, mm-hmm. right? So as soon as we started getting the simunition, man, it was such a freaking awesome, awesome game changer. And that's how we would, you know, when I talked about the stress, the stress of going into the kill house in 1995 when you're like, hey, hey, Glover, you freaking threw a shot. You know, you're like, oh, you better not throw another shot. You're like, that's the kind of pressure. It's a certain kind of pressure. It's a certain kind of stress, right? The stress of you're going in and you're staring at someone that's like, please don't shoot me, please don't shoot me. That's a totally different kind of stress. They both provide benefit, but there's a different inoculation that you get from one and the other. Mm -hmm. You need to get both. Both, You need to get both. And I think the one that we missed out on in the 90s was the combat stress of mayhem and chaos and decision-making really rapidly. I had a guy and we were hitting a target and we found a freaking IED that was like set in the perfect position to blow up the assault force, you know, like outside the door, stacked along the wall, there's an IED. We, we, we hit it without them knowing, you know, we got in there and then I'm like, leave the assault, I'm walking outside and there's a freaking guy comes walking up. He's walking down the street carrying a box and you know, my, Gunner is like starts lazing him. The guy kind of keeps walking. Interpreter starts yelling or whatever. So then I go, I go, hold, you know, hold on. I'm going to get him. And I start moving towards him. And I tell my terp, I'm, I got a terp like over my shoulder. And I'm like, tell him to put that freaking box down. So the guy like bends down, puts puts the box down. So I walk. I, so now I approach him. And as I get to him, his hands are in his pockets. I'm like, tell him to show him his hands. Show his hands. He pulls out his hands. He's got a remote control in his hand. And I'm like, now I have his collar. I have his shirt because I'm about to put him down. And so that's how close I am to him. And I, with my gun, I freaking hit that remote control. Like it was easier than shooting him. Like the quickest thing I could do was get that remote control out of his hand. I hit that thing out of his hand. I drop the dude. I don't shoot him, but I, dro- I get control of him, knock him down. And, and um, you know, just get control of the situation. And I'm like talking to the turp, I zip tie him and everything. And then I kind of like go back to being, I'm the assault force commander, right? So I kind of <laughs> like, okay, let me go handle my shit. So another SEAL comes over, they start wrapping him up. Um, and I think, you know, this guy was walking in there to freaking bomb us and I just got lucky. So it turns out the dude's drunk and he had been over at his buddy's house. In the box was a videotape machine and he was over there watching porn. <laughs> and yeah, I almost freaking smoked And it. he had a remote. Had a remote in his pocket. Yep, had a remote in his pocket. And the reason I didn't shoot him is because I was so close to him that it was qu- the the instinct to do was to get that remote out of his yeah, hand so he didn't yeah. blow us up. That's what I thought he was going to do. Um, and so I just knocked it out of his hand. And then I, I mean, I could have shot him, but I didn't. 
But those kind of things, because we've done so many like drills and so much simunition and so much close contact, you do those things over and over and over again, you get you you get better at making these decisions. And you know, Leah's a stud. Like, you know, just the fact like you say like Leah did this good thing, that's freaking outstanding, right? Getting three rounds off, quick draw off of the guy that fires back and he he goes from a de-escalated situation immediately back into a deadly force escalation. That's a that's a freaking tough decision to make. But like Leah's a jujitsu black belt. Like she's used to stress and problems. Not not as used to as she is now. She's getting better and better. Like you do that drill with her five more times. She's paying attention to different things. Yeah. Like she'll never let her guard down again when somebody's still a threat. That person's still a threat. Just because they turn their back on you doesn't mean they're not a threat. She learned that lesson. She learned it like Almost written in blood. Yeah. Almost written in blood. Yep. And that's where you make improvements. We got so much better once we started using simunition. And then on the in the desert warfare scenarios, we had like a laser tag system that was awesome. Way better than Miles. No offense, Miles, but it was way better than Miles. And the same thing. Like you would see guys just be able to work and make decisions very quickly. But the point of all that I'm trying to say right now is you can get better at this stuff. You who's listening to this right now. And, and by the way, the arrogance and ignorance that you think, dude, I, f- I wouldn't let that happen. Yes, you don't know. Hey, sure, you might be the 1% of the population that's just super cool and makes awesome decisions all the time. You might be that person. Even freaking Mike Glover, first time getting hit with a 107 millimeter, was a little bit locked up for three to six seconds. A guy that had been through ranger school, been through SF training, done a bunch of live fire. So if that can happen to him, and you think because... You got a cool attitude, you're gonna be good to go. Like it ain't happening. You have to freaking train to get better. That's what you have to do. Um, you mentioned me in this book, so that's cool, I appreciate it. Which one, where did I mention uh, you? Former Navy SEAL, Jocko Willink. Oh yeah. He's talked about. That's a good example though. I mean, that's a perfect it example. It is. Where I think the most impactful thing about that statement, which is, you talking about, hey, the best way to kind of de-escalate is like, like run. Like you, you could have the confrontation and you can get sued, you can potentially get killed, or you could just go the opposite direction. And I think it's impactful because when you have a, when you have capability, it's like a, it's like a martial art uh, staple. You learn martial art because you, you know you're learning a, a skill set that could potentially be uh, lethal. Mm-hmm. That is valuable, but you also have to be very responsible with that skill set. Bro, I'm, we just did this event, <laughs> and I was telling these people, is that the muster? So at the muster, we do yeah. like a night of jujitsu at the end. So we're teaching. So we, we teach like literally just teaching what jujitsu is. And so I talked about the Americana arm. Like, I'm like, listen, when you do this, you got to do it really slow. These are people that have never trained before. Yeah. I go, you got to do this really slow. If you, if you, Go too hard, you will wreck your partner's shoulder. They will never be the same. So please be very, very careful when you just do this very slowly. Okay, cool. Everyone's like, okay, cool. <laughs> then we said, you know, I'm like, Echo, let's teach something else. And so we, let's teach rear naked joke. So we usually do that. And so then I say, hey, listen, so we're about to teach you something that if you do this, you, will, you can kill somebody. And there was a woman, you remember this woman? She was sitting there and she looked at me like, Oh my God. You know, uh, uh, people that aren't familiar with firearms, like yeah. they look at a gun like it's just, oh, yeah. they're totally petrified of it. Yeah. 
she looked at me like I was that gun. Like it was, and I, and, and I realized like that's a crazy thing to say. To say, listen, we're about to teach you something. In the next two and a half minutes, we're gonna teach you how to murder somebody, how to kill somebody. That's what you're gonna learn. Yeah. That's exa- and it just happened in New York. You saw that subway case. Uh, the 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 former Marine put a rear naked choke on the dude. I don't know enough details about it to know what went down because I heard different stories so far, but. You put a rear naked choke on somebody for an extended period of time, they're gonna die. That's yeah. what's gonna happen. Yeah. People people gotta realize like what how much power that is mm-hmm. when you have that power. And then you've also gotta realize, look, that person has a knife. You know, you put them in a rear naked choke, they pull out that knife and stick you six times in the in the thigh, and now you get a femoral bleed and you die in a minute and a half. Yeah. What's it worth? Yeah. yeah. And there's a time and place. And I think the impact is like you could be uh, the alpha or apex, but you, there's a time and place. Like if I have my kids with me, which the majority of the time I do, there is nothing more important and sacred than those children's security and safety. And so I'm weighing that. I don't need to get in the confrontation. And most of those confrontations revolve around ego. And again, the idea here is we're surviving and thriving in these environments. We're not on the back end of reacting because you know we want to win the argument or the debate. It's not worth it. Yeah. It's not worth it. The ego probably has the biggest kill count in a in America. Oh yeah, <laughs> I mean one hundred percent. Like, hey, what did you mean? We just answered a question like this on one of our other podcasts. The guys, like, hey, you know what? What do you do when someone just like cuts you in line and you just you know you struck them out? <laughs> and we're kind of like, bro, <laughs> like, <we're> like <laughs> man, like someone cuts you in line at the grocery store, you're gonna. He said, tear. Like, I want to rip their. Rotator cuff apart. And you're like, bro, <laughs> like if someone cuts you in line, man. You know how many problems when someone cuts you in line and is a, is is an asshole. Do you know how many issues they have in their life that oh, they're like, course. hey, I'm yeah. good. you know, they push you away. Like, you know how many issues that human being has in their life? They got all kinds of freaking issues. They don't have any friends. Yeah. Their wife hates them. Their kids hate them. Their job is terrible. Like, they they got issues, man. You don't need to add to their issues. You should just be like, yeah, go ahead, man. No problem. That's. That's how you win in that situation. You win by de-escalating the conflict before it even starts. Put your freaking ego in check. Like who? Who are you? How can you be so insecure that you're like, I'm gonna kill this guy? Cut me <laughs> That's first world perspectives, man. Oh damn. Uh, let's see. Yeah, CCW. Echo and I were talking about the CCW classes. When you go to those in California, the CCW classes is basically like what, what was the quote that you used? Well, you used it to me to use back to you. Oh, okay. it's, a, it's one big class on why not to shoot somebody. No, yeah. but then you said when you pull oh, the trigger. Yeah, yeah. You probably heard this one too. Well, uh, just think about it in terms of if you pull the trigger, just uh, uh, assume that your name, address, social security number, and bank account is written on the bullet. <laughs> That's what they said. It's true. It is but a it's true. class in what's going to happen if you shoot somebody. Yeah. And it doesn't matter. Like you, you paint the worst case scenario that you can possibly think of, and you're still like going to jail. You're going to spend a, some t- amount of time in jail. You're going to sp- spend a, a huge amount of money legally. Like it's just stuff that you really need to think through. Now, does that mean you shouldn't be prepared? No, you absolutely should be prepared because obviously um, there's times when you got to do it. Yeah, there's going to be consequences to every action. And the guy in Dallas, Texas, who winded up killing that protester, I mean, dude's a, dude's a military guy, yep. part-time Ubering, and drops off a protester at a protest. He's in the middle of it. This guy walks up with an AK-47. 
an AK-47 yeah. in the middle of a protest. He he thinks his life's in danger. It's his perspective. It's a stand-your-ground state, by the way, which that would extend in Castle Doctrine with the both Castle Doctrine and stand-your-ground in Texas. It would extend to the domicile of his vehicle, which was. And that guy, he felt like he raised the gun. That's his perspective. He, he felt like his life was in danger. He winds up killing this guy. And now he's spending the rest of his life in prison. I mean, he just got charged, and he just got sentenced to 25 years, I believe. I know. And now he's in prison. The, the governor of Texas, Governor Abbott, is saying that he will pardon him, but that's what we're banking on here. Like, when, even when you have all the law to back you, what it depends on is the district attorney, the political um, agendas of that attorney, and then how they paint the picture. Because that picture, if, you, if I say it out loud on this podcast and people are like, clear-cut case of self-defense. Well, how it was painted to that jury, it was a clear-cut case of murder. So always remember, like, you know, even like one of the things I've, that's always kind of disturbed me is this retracted gun in civilian training mm-hmm. where you, you're, you're practicing shooting retracted. And, and no offense to the guys who teach it, because I think it's a valuable tool. You should understand that skill set in close proximity fights, except the people who teach it, including myself, who come from a military background, we had the rules of engagement to back us. You grab my gun in combat, and if you're an enemy combatant, I'm killing you, right? You you uh, get in a conflict physically with me, I'm going to kill you. This is not combat, right? So I've had a student before who said he went through that training where you retract the pistol, you offset it, and you break shots. And I said to him, because this is a good question, because the, the, the whole scenario in this retracted gun, you're in physical contact with a person. So I said, what is the situation in which you would track a gun and shoot a person in their abdomen? You'd likely start in their abdomen and stitch them all the way up through. What, what was the situation? Well, I don't know, in a bar? Like, what, explain to me bar. Well, I don't know, if a guy like got in a fight with me, like headbutted me? Okay, so if a guy headbutted you, which means he physically assaulted you, and you pulled a pistol retracted, and you shot and killed that person, you would spend the rest of your life in prison in, in the most conservative city and state in America. He's like, well, what do you mean? I was like, well, number one, in concealed carry, you can't have a gun or firearm in concealed or overtly carried in a place where they serve alcohol. That's, that's one, because that's like the precursor to them saying he was already illegally carrying and then he was physically assaulted. Did that warrant and justify self-defense and using deadly force? Because you just killed this guy. like. Uh, so what, when it would be a good situation? I'm like, likely there's not many scenarios that I can come with, come up with. Maybe if the guy headbutted you and then drew a knife to stab you in the chest and you grabbed his wrist and you and you press checked or you retracted the gun and shot him, maybe then. But you have to understand all the technical training that you're learning, which is you introducing these tactics to a scenario. You have to understand the scenario and its complexity. You can't just get a tool of tactics and immediate react, immediately react and go, oh, reference tool six slash B, retracted gun, because there would be an inappropriate response in a retracted gun in close proximity, especially in assault. Likely there are not juries who are gonna say, oh, he got punched in the face and then the dude shot him? Oh, that guy's going to jail for murder, Mm -hmm. because that's how it works. It's like, oh, maybe we should have this conversation. Maybe we should talk about these things in decision making. Yeah, the uh, the one in Texas that you're talking about with the AK-47, that that uh, 
you hear people, or I've heard people talking about LARPing. Do you know what LARPing yeah, is? Yeah. Live action role playing, which yeah. is normally like people. We, uh, Medieval times. <laughs> people that are doing Renaissance fairs and stuff, and they're doing so lightning, bolt, lightning bolt, right? And you like get it, it's chuckle, cool, good for them. Um, I don't want to go too hard on LARPing because Jason Gardner might be might be listening, and you never know, dude. Jason Gardner might be out there LARPing right now, doing some swinging a sword. Uh, yeah, he's singing, swinging a sword right now, playing some D and D. All good. That's my brother right there. But the point in that story, or the reason I brought that up, is because you know, okay, this guy's going to spend the rest of his life in jail. The other guy's dead. The guy that was dead, the guy that's dead, I can just about guarantee you, he in his mind was out thinking he's the ruler of, you know, like no one's gonna mess with him, he's got an AK-47. And you just don't know what you're doing. You don't know who you're up against, you don't know that you got a guy that's a veteran that's that's been under threat before, and you don't raise an AK-47 in another person and expect not to die. There, It's a naive, LARPing person, it's a live action role-playing person that takes an AK-47, begins to aim it at another human being and doesn't expect to die. Like that's just a naive idiot person that is doing uh, uh, that is making the biggest and the last mistake that they're going to make in their mm-hmm. life. So there's that. The other thing about this is, you know, and this is something they hit on big time in the concealed carry courses. Like you pull out your gun, now you, any cop that sees you, I mean, you arrive on the scene. And there's somebody shooting somebody. You're getting shot. So you better figure out, you better really, really, really know what the hell you're doing and uh, think through it mm-hmm. and then train for it. And then train for, you know, you get Leah who dumps three rounds into a guy and she's standing there frozen and a cop comes around the corner and sees her with her weapon aimed at someone else who's now on the ground. What, what that cop might shoot her. Yeah, that's happened too. So these are the things that you really truly have to mentally think through and then you have to physically train through because as Leah said, there's a huge gap between, hey, I, I talked through this, I understood what my own personal rules of engagement were, I understood my ethical and moral, I knew what my trigger points were, and then when it happens, it's like a totally different thing. That's why this training that you're talking about is so freaking important. Um, You got a whole section in here on Everyday carry. One of the most popular hashtags on the interwebs, right? EDC. Um, and you take it, you know, I, I like the fact that you you pointed out here, you know, the reason, the, the time you first recognized this was you're working for the CIA. Mike, don't wear those flip-flops on base. I was confused, I knew the rules. I always followed the proper army protocol wherever I was, but I'm not working right now, I said. On this base, with only a handful of us here, you're always working, on or off duty. It clicked immediately and stayed with me long after I left GRS and moved into preparedness training in the civilian world. That what you're wearing and everything you're doing is you have to be, you're your own first responder. Um, and then you start talking about going through your ADC, your EDC and then you point out it's everything from head to toe. You're yeah. always your own first responder. A lot of people, like the first time I realized that is, I mean, in the military, there's always a task and purpose. It's the right right time, right place, right uniform. And what I realized in that capacity of that job, being in a country where we had no QRF, we had no support, is I was my own first response and I couldn't lean on any other external factors to support me. That 
is what a civilian has to live through. I mean, you, you imagine you're a dad and you're going to Disney World with your family. Everything that you do from the actions, behavior, your situation awareness, all the intangible versus the tangible matter in a situation where you would respond to a catastrophe. Because, you know, we talk it from head to toe. If we were doing an operation, like let's say we, our, our joint units were doing an operation together and it was a low-vis operation, we would look at the operational environment and depending on what we try to accomplish, we would adapt the uniform in every aspect. We'd have to ditch the sun to watches. You know, we'd have to cover up our tattoos. We'd have to do the mooge beard, the shemogs, whatever that climate was, we would have to adapt to it. The problem in civilian life is most people, when they think about EDC, they think about pistol. Pistol is the lowest probability out of all the things that you wear and carry that are likely to happen. I mean, there's some varying statistics on this, but it's not likely to be used. I, I would say security for me and my protocol as a principal is the number one principle. Always focus on security first as a measure and, and as equipment. But what else do you have on person? From your demeanor, like when we talk about demeanor, we're used to operating environments where demeanor hits is the spike in pattern. So if you see somebody acting erratic uh, and their demeanor uh, presents a certain picture, that is going to take you through a noodle loop that's going to allow you to process information and potentially act on that information. In civilian life, if you want to look like a scumbag because you just don't feel like dressing the part, you're going to dress a certain way. Just know that there's a time and place. You do that and you aren't set up properly, you will potentially get killed for it. Uh, an example would be, I like to wear board shorts and t-shirts. It's not the best thing to carry or to be functionally ready, but you could adapt that because if you have a fanny pack, this is me exercising and, and pushing fanny packs on you. If you have a sling bag for guys who don't like fanny packs, you could have that, still, that same setup, but also be more capable with more capacity to carry gear. And that's what we're talking about because out of all the things I talk about in that, one of the most important aspects where I learned this was about um, survival. And the idea came from a survival school that I went to the NCIA, and I can't talk about it too much, but I went through a survival school that basically trained case officers to survive in semi-permissive environments if shit hit the fan. So if a country falls apart and they have to bug out, the number, just as it is in reconnaissance for the military, is 72 hours. So if you ask yourself right now if something happened, one, do you have ready access to that life-saving equipment? It's good to have first aid gear, but if it's in a first aid bag in your trunk of your vehicle, when you're at inside the office, when somebody was just a casualty, that's not gonna help you. So you need ready access on person. So one, do you have the equipment and is it readily accessible? Two, do you have enough equipment on person to potentially survive the worst case scenario, whether it be a natural or man-made disaster, right here, right now? And most people will not. And I get the whole like, um, it's not convenient. I mean, a lot of the equipment that we sell, we think about convenience and integrating survival and first aid into their lives. So if right now you don't have a tourniquet on your person, okay, I get it because tourniquets are not very comfortable to carry, but do you have one in a fanny pack? Okay, you don't want to don't have a fanny pack because you don't want to wear one. Is it in your mobility platform? Is it within a reasonable amount of time that you could respond, react, and be your own first responder? That's the key with EDC. Um, I didn't realize until I went to the CIA where a Glock 17 in my waistband was my lifeline. If I was lucky, a partner who had the same, and if we were even luckier, maybe a machine gun in the trunk. 
but we lived and worked and operated in environments that were similar to semi-permissive environments in America where things are cool until they're not. And you better be able to react, respond with what you have on person. And the whole flip-flop analogy, like it's not that I'm not advocating for flip-flops because I certainly wear flip-flops. Just know what you can get away with and know what's gonna change if you're barefoot uh, around gravel and now you have to pick up your two three-year-old twins and shoot, move, and communicate, potentially save their lives running across gravel in the middle of a gunfight. I mean, sometimes you take your losses, sometimes you sacrifice it all, but try to be capable. And I consciously do this. Sometimes I go into a situation, I'm like, um, I wanna wear flip-flops, but I'm going to California. I'm not taking the risk. I'm going to wear shoes and I'm gonna be able to respond. That you have to pay attention to every single metric of that. And it's not just EDC of what you carry, it's EDC of how you present yourself. Um, John Lovell from Warrior Poet Society has talked about this. There's several highly respected people who, who focus on this, Tim Kennedy. Your posture is likely to be a mitigating factor in worst case scenarios more than your everyday carry pistol. Because if you walk around looking weak, uh, deficient, you're likely going to be the victim because uh, bad guys don't exploit strength. They exploit weakness. So even how you carry yourself matters. And there's a time and place. I've been in operations where I've pretended to be frail, weak, and broken because that was just the demeanor. But when we're in civilian society and we're less likely to be a victim, we have to act the part. And if you have bad posture, it's like, well, posture's gonna save me? Yeah, it might. Because you're at the gas station pumping gas and somebody rolls up and they pick three people, who are they gonna pick? The weakest of them all. And last thing on that is when we talk about that and you look at women, the w reason women are exploited most often, by men, by the way, uh, in all violent crime, is because they're weak or they're perceived as weak. The mitigating factor for weakness in assault, sexual or not, violence, is that that one pound pistol that is the difference between, uh, I don't care if you're Leah and you're a third degree black belt in Brazilian Jiu Jitsu, I'm 240 pounds, I will pummel your ass to death. I don't care what your lineage is. There is a, a, a factor there where a woman's discrimination tool is being able to win the fight with a tool because that's gonna mean the difference between life and death, and especially for women. So if you're a woman, listen to this, and you don't carry an everyday carry pistol because you think the statistics in murder is not, not viable enough for you to justify carrying a pistol or learning about a pistol, I would ask you to look at all the violent statistic uh, statistics that are out there first and then realize you could be a victim because if you're a 120 pound woman and um, you don't everyday carry, you are waiting to be a potential victim. And if you and this is statistic based, this is probabilities. Man, one of the earliest videos that we made, Echo Charles, was me talking about self-defense. I was like, oh yeah, that someone asked what's the best form of self-defense. I was like, best form of self-defense is a pistol. Mm -hmm. like, you, that's what you should do. You, if you really are, if you, because I start, I'm thinking to myself, like if I'm talking to a legit, whoever asked this random question on the internet, if it's a 120 pound woman that lives in some bad area, and she's saying, hey, what's the best form of self-defense? And I say, it's jujitsu, or it's Muay Thai, or whatever. That's just not true. And you, if you really are in a situation where you need to protect yourself and you're 120 pounds, you need to get a pistol. 
when I do talk to females, especially about training, about training martial arts, specifically about training jiu-jitsu, and they can come back to me then with like, well, if you're saying I'm 120 pounds and you're saying that a 240-pound guy can still, even if I know jiu-jitsu, can still subdue me and control me, what's the point in even doing this? The answer to that is also very simple. When you know how to defend yourself, you might buy yourself an extra six seconds. You might buy yourself an extra eight seconds. You might present yourself with a posture that someone says, oh, I'm not gonna mess with this woman. But even if it's four extra seconds where somebody sees a license plate of a vehicle that you're getting stuffed into or a cop drives by in those 10 seconds or another bystander comes by, like those seconds can absolutely save your life. And if you know how to fight, you'll be able to make that like you try, you try grabbing Leah. You you try grabbing Leah she and try and see you. think you're going to get her into a freaking vehicle. <laughs> like I'm a black belt too. It's going to take me some time and effort. Like it's going to be hard. It's going to be a, it's going to be a fight. And so learn that stuff. And even if you are armed and someone grabs you, don't expect it. And you know jujitsu, you're going to be able to be comfortable being grabbed. You're going to be used to that, and it's going to be very beneficial to you. Flip flops. If you're one of these people that thinks, well, if I get into a bad situation, I'll just suck it up and I'll be able to run across that gravel and it's no big deal. This is another like assessment that you need to do of yourself. It's bullshit. You, you get into, unless you have Indian feet, you know, which if you grow up and you're on the beach all the time and you're wearing, you're never wearing shoes, you can, you can, I know my, my freaking son's like that. Like that dude could just run. I've seen him run across legit gravel. No factor. Cause he grew up not wearing shoes. But a normal person, you're not gonna be able to do that. I can't do that. I can't do that. If I'm gonna be more than 50 to 100 yards away from my territory, I can't wear flip-flops. You have to be in a situation where you go, okay, like anytime you're going somewhere, um, whatever, you're going out for dinner in downtown and you're gonna valet your car, you're in a situation you cannot wear flip-flops, not allowed. If you're in a situation where you're gonna go and you're gonna go to the gym and you're gonna park in the parking lot and you got 30 meters into the parking lot or 30 meters back to your car, I'll cut you a little leeway. Don't let it get outside that bubble though. I'm a flip-flop guy, you know? If I'm not barefoot, I'm wearing flip-flops. But don't lie to yourself and don't press the envelope or push the envelope on those because if you get caught, you're not gonna be able to suck it up and run across gravel or 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 broken glass or whatever. You're not gonna be able to do it. So be careful of that one. Um, what else do you cover in this? Pistols, you cover you cover pistols, you cover knives. Talking about tactical knives versus survival knives, hybrid models. Dude, get this book, it's good information. Non-lethal. You talk about stun guns and sprays and you give some very pertinent information on those two things. You Those are things you need to think through. Those are things you need to think through. You need to read the book and then you need to assess where you're at as a human um, because they're different. Like a stun gun, cool. And what's nice about stun guns is they're legal. Like you can go, huh, I don't want to quote, I don't, don't, I don't, want, to, I don't want to get myself in a legal trouble. <laughs> Chaco said. Yeah, but you, they're, they're almost everywhere you can carry like a stun gun, almost everywhere. So if you're not comfortable with firearms, or the firearms aren't allowed in the place that you're going, and you're not a person that has the ability to carry everywhere, then 
maybe you need to look into those options. Same thing with pepper spray, um, bear spray, pepper spray, all those things. You do a great job covering this stuff. And then you get into this survival thing. Um, When I train survival in the context of everyday carry, like you said, the framework for that training is 72 hours. You want to be able to survive for 72 hours. You go through what you need for medical, what you need for shelter and fire, you, what you need for food and water. Like, what does that get you for 72 hours? Like, like me, I don't carry food for 72 hours not doing it. I would barely carry food on a 72-hour operation. Like, I'm not carrying food. I'm... Got pl- I'm a well marbled individual. I can go. I can go some distance. Wagyu. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm some straight up wagyu. I can. It doesn't bother me. I can go in the field and and eat. I used to bring like one MRE main meal a day. That's it, and that takes up no space and it's no weight. But if you're a person, because I know people that need food, they start freaking out without food. But water, bro, I'm loading it out with water. Same. You sweat a lot. Oh, bro. Yeah. Yeah. You cut some veins in here, you're getting butter and Crisco and water. <laughs> and that's most Americans, too. Yeah. Um, you talk about illumination. You know, what What do you mean by illumination? We're talking about freaking flashlights. The difference between having a flashlight and not having a flashlight. <laughs> like Be Blind or not being it's blind. It's blind yeah. or not being blind. Yeah. It's, it's totally insane. And to not have a flashlight in your vehicle is totally insane. Not having a flashlight in, in your first line or second line kit, you're gonna have issues with that. So think about these things, signaling devices, you go through your whole everyday carry, um, including bags, and what, you guys sell a bunch of everyday carry stuff. What you carry, what do you sell? Um, a butt pack? Pretty much everything, like uh, the fanny pack, the, the first aid equipment, some survival components. Um, I, I think the most important aspect, if I was gonna talk about two things would be the tourniquet and the bleeding control kit mm-hmm. because they're very man packable. I mean, they're, they're something that you can stuff in your pocket if you wanted to opt that way. Um, but the, in my opinion, the most important elements of, of everyday carry that aren't focused on that need to be is putting first aid first, mm-hmm. you know, including a tourniquet. Yeah. That tourniquet, man. That's why I started with that story. What a, what a travesty. I have to read this part. Even though you kind of covered a little bit, I want to at least mention one thing. You said, if there's one thing I've learned over 20 years in the military and intelligence service and war zones and hostile territory, it's how to carry yourself is truly your first line of defense. When you stand tall, when you stay alert, when you are aware of everything around you, when you look like you know what you're doing and how to handle yourself, violent threats tend to find you less often. And we actually did a podcast about, they interviewed a bunch of criminals, violent criminals, and the, the common thread of people that they looked to avoid that criminals didn't want to attack, the term that that bubbled to the surface was people that looked organized. Really? Yep. If Ooh. people look organized, pe- uh, victimizers, are, they think uh, that looks like trouble. Interesting. Yeah, it's an interesting word. What are word. characteristics of organization? I, I think it's the things that you away? mentioned here. I think it's yeah. looking squared away. I think it's a head on a swivel. It's like, oh, this person has purpose in life. They're, they're aware of what's happening. Um, then you say this, not only that, but when you carry yourself that way, you will begin to feel that way. And then you will start to act that way. It's just the way the mind works. If you want to be less sad, smile more. The smile comes before the happiness. There's an old saying, fake it till you make it, it's true. Project confidence and competence, display capacity and capability, even if you're not totally there yet, and soon enough you will feel like you, you will feel and be all those things. 
and being all those things will make you make projecting them effortless and unconscious it becomes a flywheel of sorts that spins off many positive things including most importantly preparedness my only comment on that is just be careful because you start faking it faking it <laughs> and you you'll can get make made. it you'll yeah. get made yeah you want to fake it but you want to definitely make sure you're freaking know what you're doing and don't don't become don't go back into the ignorance and arrogance category yeah. which can happen real quickly like with flip flops, oh, I can just suck it up, bro. My my freaking son, we were up at Yosemite. He did like one of those like hikes, like a big hike where people are wearing, you know, uh, they're carrying the the poles and they're wearing freaking Sorel boots and the whole nine yards. He's barefoot, bro. Wow. <laughs> people are just like, what is this That's kid's awesome, freaking man. deal? <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, next section, you start getting into mobility, and what does that mean? In a worst case scenario, one of the surest tactics to avoid becoming a casualty is having a well-rehearsed plan of escape and evasion and a well-equipped vehicle. In other words, loading up your car, truck, or motorcycle to get off the X. And you had a whole chapter, we didn't cover it, about getting off the X, what that means, why it's important, um, and increase the, the probability of your survival. And then you get into vehicle selection, you know, what you can use a vehicle for. A vehicle is shelter, right? Um, what is your thing? I O U in on or under. I got it. I've got an addendum to you, so you can rooftop camping. You can go under. I've got a note three times in here. You know what it says? Mm. It says ground pad, ground pad, ground pad. Mm. Because you talk about mylar blanket. You talk about sleeping bags, but it doesn't say ground pad. It needs a gr- you need a ground pad. <laughs> Dude, that will I, save your life. To me, I thought to myself, you know what? Ground pad is so embedded in Mike's brain that he didn't put it in here. <laughs> it is. Yeah. It's always been attached to my rock you in some way. You have to have a ground pad. 100%. You have to have a ground pad. I'll take a ground pad over sleeping bag all day long. Ground pad is like, you need a freaking ground pad. I did, I was going through comm school. Mm-hmm. We're going on an FTX, and I was a new guy. I didn't even have my trident yet, but I was at a team, yeah. and they sent me right to comm school. On the East Coast, it was a great comm school run by this freaking crazy comm chief, um, SEAL. And we did a seven-day FTX. And he tells me, like, hey, Willink, if you're really hard, you'll go in there with just a poncho and a poncho liner. And I'm like, check, watch this. So we go in, I'm just, I literally have a poncho and a poncho liner. My poncho did have a a zip on it. Uh You know, like you you put zippers on it to make it kind of a sleeping bag. But, um. No ground pad. No barrier between the no. earth. We and as we inserted, it was raining. Oh, and then it turned to sleet. Oh and no, then it turned to snow. No, and you had to make calms like every two to four hours. And most guys would you in two man pairs. I was with GIF, by the way. GIF, hell yeah. Yeah, we you had to make calms every two to four hours. And most guys would like miss calm windows because they would fall asleep. You know, because it's twenty four hours a day. Yeah, and we never missed a calm window. Why? Because we weren't sleeping. Because oh. we were freezing. So, ground pad. Get yourself a ground pad. Unless people. you want to pass combo school. <laughs> Don't bring it down. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, you get through just all the stuff with, with mobility and, again, all the way down to communications and what you're going to do, what's your plan, your first aid, what does that look like inside your vehicle? Those are all just critical things that you need to think about you get into motorcycles, like you, you, you do the whole nine yards, man. Um, and then the, the last section here is about your house, your homestead. 
We began this book and the, this preparedness journey by talking about the importance and primacy of mental resilience in survival. We're going to end it by talking about the importance of creating physical resilience within your homestead. Outfitting your homestead is critical to get right. It's where you live. It's where you raise your kid. It's your shelter. It's your security. It's where your survival is sustained and where your preparation could be the difference between thriving and just getting by or not. And this is like kind of your expertise beyond expertise is setting up security, right? Yeah. yeah. As a weapons guy. Um, and these are, you know, you, you point this on it. I didn't really highlight any of this just because I don't, I just don't care about it. I, but I understand you had to address it. You talk about it a few times in the book, like, listen, this isn't crazy. You're not, you're not crazy because you think through the security of your house. This doesn't make you a paranoid prepper that's nuts, that's wearing a tinfoil hat. It doesn't do that. And you address it in the book, you know, you, not, not huge, but you, you at least mention it. But if you don't look at your house and think to yourself like, oh, how vulnerable is my family? How vulnerable is my family to a break, a B&E? How vulnerable is my family to a fire? How vulnerable is my family to, where, where are the electrical wires that are around my house? What kind of security do I have? What other, like the neighbor's dog, what kind of dog does the neighbor have? What kind of dog, do, like all these basic things. You're not paranoid and you're not a, a crazy person to think through the safety and security of your family in their house. This is not, Matter of fact, not only are you not crazy if you do it, as far as I'm concerned, you're crazy if you don't do it. Go watch the news for a half an hour and then decide you don't want to just do a little sanity check on your residence to make sure that it makes sense how it's set up. This is common sense stuff that's not happening. And, and you know, you mentioned earlier like um, the guilt someone would have can you imagine if something happens in your house and, and something happens to one of your family members because you didn't take a half an hour to sit down and talk with your wife about what you're going to do if there's a fire in our house? How are the kids going to get out of the second story window? Well, they're going to come down the hallway. What if the hallway is where the fire is? Shoulder shrug? Is that what we're doing? So do you guys offer a course where you start talking about assessing your house? Yeah, for sure. The, the first course... We actually call this level three of basic pistol defense and also uh, carbine defense. But the idea in one through three is learning the basics is one, obviously. With two, we take those basics and we introduce them in new environments. And then you're doing pistol defense in and around vehicles in level two. And level three, we're focusing on the home. And a lot of the things that are built around the home are built off the idea that with mobility, just like from everyday carry to mobility, from mobility to your home, you're increasing capacity. So if I have a tourniquet on my person, I want a first aid bag in my vehicle. I want a stretcher and antibiotics in my home, right? I have the space. So I'm reinforcing and building everything out. With home security, we offer a personal security course because CQD, which is close quarters defense, is very different than close quarters battle. It is not offensive. It is very defensive. There is surreptitious movement involved, and you know the layout of your home. So it's not like 
I need to seek points of domination and clear it. And I'm also by myself. You know, CQB is a collective task. CQD is a very individual task and the consideration and tactics are very different. So it's important to delineate the difference. And I, I, I look at Homestead as one of the most important elements of preparedness, but it's also the funnest component of preparedness. I have, go, look, I've never, I grew up in Daytona Beach, Florida. Uh, I grew up in North Carolina in the boonies. And when I went in the military, I spent the rest of my time overseas. I had never grew up with, I mean, I grew up messing around in, chicken, in pig farms and stuff like that, but I never raised chickens and did all this stuff. I've, I have chickens. Like my chickens just dumped 30 eggs on us yesterday. My kids <laughs> eat like a dozen eggs every morning, but I have eggs or I have How chickens. How many chickens do you have? I have 10. Okay, yeah, that's a Man. lot of eggs. So I get crushing eggs. So I have uh, 10 chickens, ducks, goats. I just slaughtered a, a Wagyu steer with 600 plus pounds of meat, fed my company with a whole bunch of meat. Um, I'm doing a greenhouse, gardening outside, bees, um, renewable energy sources. I'm doing it all. And the reason I think it's important is because it is bringing my family closer together, but I'm also learning through all these mechanisms of cutting the umbilical cord to the institution. We have so much outsourced in our lives. There are little things in your life that you could take back and it will benefit both your level of preparedness, but also your relationship with your family. I think homestead is one of the most important things. Uh, I should mention that homestead includes things like family preparedness. Uh, Miss Amber L, who works for me, teaches family preparedness for our company. She teaches canning and jarring. She teaches home homeschooling your kids. All these things are things that matter. They're all segments, but they're all, I think, equally as important as all the things that we look at. You rattle off that list of stuff, and I'm sitting over here thinking, like, again, going back to my example, it doesn't really cost you anything to walk into a room and be like, okay, there's the exits, okay, there's some good cover over there. Think of what's the downside of having bees, of having chickens, of having goats. Like, what's the downside? Oh, your kids understand nature, you get to spend time with them, your food is like from the source. It's nothing but upside. Nothing but upside. Like, these are just totally positive things to yeah. execute on. Yeah, it's an, and the, the important element which we're trying to shape and change culture is this is not a hobby. The idea of a hobby is it's very part-time. It's something that spikes your dopamine, you get excited, and then you go back to mundane life. The key here is saying, just like the special operator that we talked about in the beginning who is putting himself in harm's way on purpose, deliberately, but coming out on top is because his entire lifestyle is immersed in culture. This is a culture. And I think the last component to this book that we talk about is community. Because all of these things that we talk about bring together what I think is the most or the less divisive thing in our life that we could agree upon. Because if you're a Republican, you're a liberal, you're somewhere in between, if you came to a seminar at Philcraft Survival, you have something in common. You care about bringing yourself and your community together over preparedness. You want to protect your family. And when you bring both uh, sides of the aisle together, it's a beautiful thing. And I've seen it happen across the country where people are like, oh, I'm kind of interested in this. And there's guys from California, there's guys from Montana, and they're like on different sides of the spectrum. And they're going, maybe I should pay attention to this. That relationship and networking and building community is the most important element of, of all, which is without a community, 
um, without a um, looking at my neighbors as assets and liabilities, without building my network, you're not going to survive. The whole idea of lone survivor, the whole idea of the lone wolf mentality, will not will not execute well. At Echelon Front, we talk about something called the ladder of alignment, which means you know you and I have a business together. And you want to do something one way and I want to do something the other way and we're start arguing about it We can't come to a resolution Because you you think we should invest the money in marketing and I think we should invest the money in product and so we're arguing and What we do is we climb the ladder of alignment and we we go okay Well, what what do we both want? Do we both want the company to be profitable? Yes, we do do we both want to take care of our team? Yes, we do do we both want to take care of our clients? Yes, we do okay, so Let's figure out how we work together mm-hmm. based on the fact that we all we want the same thing. And what you just mentioned, you're someone from Montana and someone from California, even those people, some crazy freaking blue-haired liberal from California and some, you know, rancher from Montana, they can both say, "Well, do you both want to take care of your families? Do you both want to be able to protect your families? Do you both want to be self-sufficient? Do you both want to know where your food comes from? Do you both want to be able to handle yourself under stressful situations?" Like it's yes, 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 yes across the board. So maybe everybody, you're a little less different than you think you are. Mm. Um, and that's what you're saying here. It's your community that's going to protect you. It's your neighbors who are going to help you out. It's your local merchants, farmers, mechanics, doctors, and nurses who are going to make sure you and your family don't starve or freeze or suffer or die when you find yourself in a bad spot. We forget that sometimes. We lose sight of the fact it's not what you know. It's who you know. I mean, that's something we throw around all the time. Um, and it's real. Mm. You, you, talk, you mentioned here American Contingency. Tell us about American Contingency, AmericanContingency.com. This is what you got in trouble for. I heard you talking <laughs> to Rogan about this, right? Yeah. You, got, you, got, you uh, got labeled a terrorist? Yeah, so I, I, I don't think I got, I think I got uh, put in a box where everybody assumed that um, I was looked at as a domestic terrorist, and I think part part of that is true. But most certainly, American Contingency got looked at as a militia, violent extremist organization. An MVE is the new coin term. Uh, I've had guys in the FBI both confirm that Project Veritas leaked the information and the do- and the documents that prove that. And what it was was they identified that American Contingency could be a a nest or a hotbed for potential. Um, extremists that wanted to build their networks, except that we're not extremists. We moderate all of our content. We look at everybody who's on board. We have a vetting process where we want people to build communities again like we used to do. Like when I grew up, I knew my neighbors. I mean, I I remember growing up and being in people's houses. I had no idea, but my dad knew who they were and they were making phone calls because we didn't have cell phones at the time. Like, where the hell is the son? The call and landlines, like, three houses down, he, oh, he's on the third house after the third phone call. So that is a miss in our country. I mean, we, we live next to people where we go, you know, we scowl at our neighbor because we try to run in from our vehicle to our door so we don't get seen by our neighbor because we'd rather, you know, interact with people on social media. We also live in apartment complexes where we're stacked on top of each other and you know nobody around you. The problem with that is throughout history, every single a study done on catastrophe has proven that the link in and connection with people has meant the difference between surviving and thriving or potentially losing it all. And so uh, 
American contingency's idea and concept came from the actions that happened or the inactions really that happened in Seattle with the mayor basically telling the law enforcement officers to not to do their job. And I said, well, that's a problem. Well, then how the hell are people supposed to resource and connect? Well, Facebook is like canceling people offline because they're conservatives or because whatever. We need to start a group. And so that was the launch of American Contingency to use as a form and mechanism for people to connect. And we have groups all over the country. Like I just met with a group at Greg Anderson's place, a buddy of mine in PNW. And PNW was like, I mean, the hotbed for all this drama that was unfolding. But a group came out to see me because I go around the country teaching. And it was a group of doctors, lawyers, mechanics. And they basically built their own operational detachment of capability and assets working with each other. They have family barbecues. They go out to the range together. They do TCCC. The doctors are teaching first aid and trauma. Um, the, there's financial people who are given financial advice. And people are like, the government would look at that and go, that's a militia. I would look at that and go, that's resilient Americans. And so um, if the Red Dawn ever does happen, we want a capable um group of communities across the nation that are capable of taking care of themselves. If it doesn't come, what we're building is resilience in America where people can depend on each other. And that's the key here. I mean, all the things, I mean, it's funny because we did this for a living <laughs> by, with, and through. For me, I don't want to be the commander of American contingency. I started it and it runs itself. Tom and the, and, and the team at American contingency run this. These groups are organically building themselves up we are just giving them the tools and the template for how to do it properly and ethically. Uh, and what we're seeing is a profound group of Americans coming together. And that's what American contingency is about. It's like a Facebook group that you belong to isn't your network and your asset and your family or your friends. You actually have to get out and meet these people in real life, shake their hands and go, hey, let's build relationships. That's what American contingency is all about. And that's at AmericanContingencies.com. American Contingency. Yep, AmericanContingency.com. Yep. Right on. Hey, I want to close out with this section of the book. Um, you say this, in the 21st century, we've had a major terrorist attack, two wars, more than 300 school shootings, riots, political unrest, massive hurricanes, forest fires, tornadoes, floods, bridge collapses, supply chain collapses, recessions, and a pandemic. And that's mostly just the United States I'm talking about. I don't say any of this to scare you. The purpose of this note and this book is not to frighten you. It's not to highlight your deficiencies or to tell you what to do. The reason I wrote this book is to give you the mental and physical tools you need to live a prepared life, to thrive in that life, to know that you have what it takes both literally and figuratively to protect yourself, defend your family, and support your community in the event of catastrophe to know that you can, know that you will survive the worst day of your life. My one wish for you as you reach the end of this book is that in, supply, in applying its advice, insights, tools, methods, tactics, and strategies to your life, you are inspired to do everything in your power to become more self-reliant and to spend more of your precious time with your family and friends than on your phone. I want more than anything for you to be able to rest easy after a hard day's work, to love well and live free, not just for yourself, but for your future, for the future of your children and your children's children. Trust me, they will thank you for it. 
and we will all be better off not just as individuals but as a community and as a nation if first and foremost we are prepared for anything come what may <sighs> come what may um yeah there you go uh life is good until it goes bad hmm. and don't wait for it to go bad don't wait for it and by the way there's just no downside there's just no downside there's no downside to training there's no downside to hanging out with your family there's no downside to discussing what to do in stressful situations with your kids there's no downside to it there's none there's all upside and if nothing ever happens great but if it does happen you're ready I think um, this book is is what I think this book is there's obviously a ton of good good information I probably read 5% of the book today maybe if that the, the rest of it I didn't cover a lot of the detailed information that you give in there there's a ton of it in there and it's a starting point you know it's a starting point it's a starting point to open up your eyes open up your mind and realize how much more you can do as an individual human being to help yourself and help your family and help everyone around you it's gonna be powerful man I appreciate it when does it come out man June 6th D-Day June 6th D-Day that's right right on um what else? What? Uh, let's talk about where can people find you? Get engaged right now. What do we got? We got field, fieldcraftsurvival.com. Yeah, fieldcraftsurvival.com is 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 the main website. There will be um, an application for virtual education, all things from canning and jarring to self defense to mobility, all the things that we talk about in the book that will be released that same day on all eight major channels. It's like Roku, Samsung, Apple TV, all the things because we want you to have the ability to interact but also watch this on the big screen at home, uh, not just on your phone or your tablet. Um, that will be releasing the same day. Uh, if people are interested in everything that we're doing, most of the things that we offer cost absolutely nothing. That's Phil Craft Survival as a YouTube channel, uh, Mike Glover Actual as a YouTube channel, and then our podcast. Digest as much as that as possible, and if you think it's something that you're interested in, go to the website, attend training, uh, do the online application, do all the things. Um, my goal and objective is I want a Philcraft Survival Firebase or Outpost. Firebase's company-owned Outpost is like a hybrid version of it in every major city in every state in this country. I want the preparedness YMCA of the future, the modern version of that, to be accessible to not only prepare people for the worst-case scenario, but to build culture and community back into the fabric of our nation. That's my ultimate goal with Fieldcraft Survival. And they have, you have Fieldcraft Survival on Instagram, Fieldcraft Survival on Facebook, Fieldcraft Survival on YouTube and Twitter. It's on all those things. And then you, are you Mike A. Glover on Instagram? Yeah, it's Mike.A.Glover on Instagram. And my backup is Mike Glover Actual because most of the stuff that I do on Mike.A.Glover, it gets suppressed like everything else. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and then you also, we already mentioned AmericanContingency.com. Does that, does, that get us, does that get us up to speed? Yeah, we're at? that's it, man. I appreciate it. Echo Charles. Yes, sir. You ready? You ready for the questions? <laughs> They're yeah. the hard did, you, did you hear when he asked Admiral, uh, Admiral McRaven if he had to be in the Navy, if you have to be in the Navy to be an Admiral? 
That's <laughs> after his after Admiral Craven's second time on the podcast, <laughs> and after after Echo Charles being in this podcast seat <laughs> for three hundred and something episodes, talking military history, talking to veterans. <laughs> We get, I say, Echo, you got any questions? And Echo says, hey, Admiral, uh, do you need to be in the Navy to be an Admiral? No, that's a slight misrepresentation <laughs> of the question. The thank you, though. It was, how do I become Admiral? And how no, does no, one no, no, become no. Uh, you 100%. Uh, well, you uh, 90, uh, I'm 99% uh, sure you said, do I need, yeah. does someone need yeah, to be in the I Navy to be an Admiral? Did you say that or yes, not? Yes, sir, I did okay. say that. I'm but, just checking sure. <laughs> no, bro. No, I said, bro, that uh, guy was such a pro. Admiral Admiral Craven like looked at he kind he I'll have to review the tapes he kind of looked at me for a second like hold on a second dude are you serious right now and I just looked at him like bro I, I wasn't sure if he was serious or not because let's face it that's an ignorant freaking question right there so I looked at Admiral McRaven like you know I. Uh-huh. I'm pretty sure he's serious and he just said well yes yes echo uh-huh. in order to be in the Navy you, you, In order to be an admiral you do have to be in the he, Navy. So. He gave a very uh, graceful gracious he answer did, for sure oh, um, man. But Almost again like he was talking to a four-year-old <laughs> <laughs> See that part is true. Yes, but no it was how does one become admiral mm-hmm. like the like the process like the yeah. actual You know process that was a legitimate question. That's what I was asking no, and then, you, no, 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 no there was like a little party in it that I threw in. I was like, wait, so I got to be in the Navy or whatever. Like, it was Dude, like that. You are, oh, oh, you are oh, rewriting yeah. history no, 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 right no, no, now. No, no. <laughs> we have tapes now. This is on video. No, right. There's, There's going to be a documentary okay. on this. All right. It. All right, right. Hey, 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 believe what you want, but that's the way it went down. You know, we yeah. can go to, hey, we got hey, the, you what know, do you call Props to Echo. He left it in there. He had the chance. He could yeah. edit it out, made himself hey, look man. a little you, bit smarter. You think I'm the only one that ever wondered that in the history of, I don't know, podcasts and admirals? Bro, you're crazy. Because that's a legitimate question, in my opinion. Bro. <laughs> my no. Opinion. It's actually not. No one's wondered that. <laughs> All right, well, okay. Well, that being said, here's the hard-hitting question. Oh, here we go. Okay. Here, we go. Here, we go. here we go. Here we go. I, I I'm know. ready. I'm I ready. Know. Okay. So, uh, okay. Actually, it's actually a small question. So, you know how, like, um, you, you know, the EDC kind of mm. thing, you know, how you see the, um, the uh, on YouTube, like the yeah. pocket dump, right? Yeah, Everyone yeah. Does the yeah. Very popular. Do, do you do, or do you, like, um, like, collect things? You know, some people like knives, so they have a bunch of, like, knives that they kind of, I guess, compulsively collect or whatever. I have drawers full of EDC everything. <laughs> oh, have, everything. Well, see, okay. I have... I just went through this. I have drawers of flashlights mm-hmm. because we test and assess different lights. Uh, we we go through lights, um, knives, wallets, RFID wallets, holsters, and I'd probably put guns in that category mm-hmm. as well. So do Tons you, are they for like, because that kind of sounds functional. Like, hey, I got to test. I got to see if this one works yeah. better for me or whatever. But do, is there anything specific or a type of thing where you go on Amazon and you know how Amazon, they, they got an algorithm like everything else. Yeah. You buy one knife, may or may not be speaking of from experience where you buy <laughs> one and then they show you the other cool one. You know, and you're like, yeah. oh, let me, this, you know, this, like, is there yeah. anything like that? Or do you, you need justification for no, buying dude. more knives? No, 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 <laughs> but this, here's the thing, bro. He's buying like, you know those crazy fantasy knives? Oh, yeah, yeah, That's yeah. what he buys. Yeah. Like he the buys, labyrinth yeah, knives oh, with like the claws. Sometimes. Oh. Sometimes. Sabers. There's sometimes. Thundercats. Algorithms, bro. I thought of So what's legitimate about this, and we teach people this in EDC, most people default to EDC as being one end-all, be-all solution. So they say, Mike, what's your EDC pistol? And I said, what time of day is it? What, what's the weather? What state am I in, right? How am I feeling? I mean, I, sometimes I carry HKP7, which is activated based off you gripping the module, which is a, a, a safety mechanism and gripping down on the gun, 
and it's a nine mil and it's not very practical as an EDC carry, except I have kids. Right. So if my three and a half year old suddenly finds my discovers my pistol because I, I neglected to keep it on person and they pick that gun up, he doesn't have the dexterity and, and size of hand to actually grip down on that and break break a shot. Mm-hmm. Glock 19 in the waistband single action only, there's no options there, right? One in the chamber, it's just gonna happen. Mm-hmm. So what I would say is every single facet of EDC there's a time and place and there's an operational environment where those things apply. Like same thing with the knives. Hey, what knife do you carry as EDC? I'm like, most of the time I carry a folding blade for utility, but it, it its dual purpose is self-defense. Mm-hmm. Some guys carry fixed blades for self-defense as a priority over utility. I'm mostly cutting open boxes with a knife, so I focus on utility. Just mm-hmm. like I displace a flashlight because I don't like lights tethered to guns, most of the time because most guns that I use don't have very comfortable holsters to carry. So I have options for all of the things in EDC, and I would say the more options, the better. It's like wearing clothes. Have plenty of options and be able to work those options into your EDC. For the um, for the event, right? Different attire for different events. Different attire for different events. So that's like the, re- and that actually is very useful because I think a lot of, I know I'm one of these people who don't really think about that part of it. You know, mm-hmm. they're like, hey, I'm going to get that knife because it's like, it kind of looks cool. It, it flips yeah. up, sounds good. It's very comfortable, you know, but it, you know, depends on where you are and what kind of circumstance. Very responsible, but I'm talking about the slightly less responsible part of Mike Glover. That's <laughs> he, like he also like has a Desert Eagle 50 cal. <laughs> <laughs> nickel plated. You, bro. Hey man, there's a time and place. Is yours, is yours nickel plated? Stainless. Oh, there you oh, go. Stainless. Okay. Say so, you know yeah, he's in the ball game. Allegedly, yeah. no. Stainless is legit. Yeah, solid. Yeah. Um, but no, the kind of like compulsively collect. Like, hey, you know, you know what I'm talking about. Like, some guys will do that with guns. They'll be like, hey, that new 19x came out or whatever. The clock, you know. The I do that with. I do it backwards though. Like I, I, what's weird is if you're if you live by the gun, which my profession, Jocko's profession, live by the gun. Guns don't do it for me. But you know what do it for me? Like you give me a lever action or a, a, a single action army cowboy gun from 1860s. Oh, the old school, dude. Yeah. I I have more of those guns than I have modern guns. Yeah, okay, so yeah, I'm that too. guy. Yeah, like I have tons of cowboy guns, yeah. Western guns. I have flashlights. I don't know why. Flashlights. Got hey, a bunch you're, into, of them. you're you're into illumination, man. Yeah, so, man. Illumination. illumination. <laughs> Hell yeah. <laughs> we right got on. asked one time about a home defense weapon, and one of the weapons I recommended. I don't know who, where. I don't know where the person was writing from, but um, MP5. Oh, it's like, like think about the ease of firing an MP5. Yeah. You're in your house. SD. I assume oh, it's God. suppressed. You yeah. know, and you get like frangible rounds. Oh my God. Like y- you could be so good with that. Like your 10 year old could just get busy with that. Oh yeah. And just lay it down. Yeah. That's a good point because that's a tactical advantage. Most guys would use their EDC. Like we we differentiate EDC to mobility to homestead. If you have your EDC pistol and you're using that as your home defense gun, you're wrong. If you have your uh, EDC pistol and you're using it as your truck gun or your vehicle gun, you're wrong. Because if you look at the ballistics, the terminal ballistics of a nine mil pistol from inside the car shooting out, not very good on glass or, or metal. Hmm. But if you look at 300 blackout and a, a, a pistol version of it, an AR pistol version of it, shooting through a windshield, no deviation no and hold, no factor. Hmm. So it, those things are important to look at and there's a, always a tactical advantage. Like my homestead uh, home defense weapon it's a SIG 320 X Legion, because I like the tungsten weight in the frame, and it's it's got a suppressor, and it's got a light. 
And people are like, well, I thought you didn't like lights. I don't like lights in EDC because I'm home before dark because I have two three-year-olds that, are, that I'm bathing and feeding before I put them, read them a bedtime, a Jocko bedtime story <laughs> sure. before yeah. I put them to bed. Yeah. So I, I, a home defense gun is going to be different. And that is all the justification for all the guys to turn to the ladies and say, babe, Mike said, yeah. I got to get all the options. Yeah. We got to spend yeah. some money and invest in preparedness. And then you got to work with those weapons so you're familiar with them all. Because you got to get the, yeah. the, the weapons platform, you got to be familiar with it. Because yep. you don't want to do make the wrong move with a weapon that you're not used to. You're used to shooting this one on the range for 10,000 rounds, and then all of a sudden you didn't flip the safety on a 45 or whatever. Dude, I, I just moved. I'm moving to a staccato um, for ADC. I have 15 ADC pistols. I have a 365 XL that's currently what I'm using now, but it's single action only. My kid, my boy, I, I have twins, but my son is all into, he calls them choo-choos, and he loves guns. And he's like, you know, he's always been around them, and I kept them unloaded on the tables on purpose so he can get immersed in them and see them. And so he's not like, ooh, what is that? He goes, oh, that's dad's choo-choo. Don't touch it, right? Mm-hmm. And if he wants to touch it, he says, daddy, can I touch it? I said, yeah, you could touch it. You could even hold it, just point it in the right direction. It's unloaded, and I'm trying to integrate this into him. Well, if you take a single-action pistol and pick it up as a th- four-year-old with this, the size of my kid's mitts now, he can wrap his hands around a Glock 19 or that 365 XL, which mm-hmm. is compact. Mm-hmm. If I have a C, I think it's called a C2 or C, CS. I might be screwing this up. It's the staccato um, version of their uh, everyday carry, the compact. Well, people are like, well, why would you ever go back to that? I'm like, I'm not going back to it. It's an option because if my kid gets his hands on that gun, he has a thumb safety and a grip safety to get through to break a shot. And for the first time, I've actually looked at 1911s and go, oh, that's kind of cool, but it's kind of novel. But Because I would never use it because it's just, a, you have to work it. Mm-hmm. I am having to retrain myself on how to activate that thumb s- uh, switch and grip down on the, on the grip a certain way because I've gotten away with using a single action pistol. But there's a time and place for everything. And if you don't get schooled on all these systems, you'll be deficient. And I'd hate to draw that pistol. I'm going to pull that trigger realizing <laughs> I didn't even grip down on the grip safe or I didn't drop that thumb lever. Mm. So it's all, it's all, all important. What'd you guys grow up? What'd you grow up on? Uh, in the military, the first one was not Beretta 92 F and then we transitioned to Glock. Okay. Night Glock 19, Glock 17. Um, and then every once in a while you find a 1911. Mm. I was 20 straight years on a 226. Oh, like it's really hard for my muscle memory. Yeah, and that's a different plot a double action single action pistol only or a single action pistol It, it is very different than I mean that length of trigger pull mm-hmm. is long yeah. single action short But to get used to that compared to a Glock 19 out of the box yeah. completely different uh, With your son and your daughter. What are you doing with toy weapons and muzzle discipline? um, if if they're in a designated war zone, which is like, we're going to war, they could shoot each other, we could do the whole thing, mm-hmm. and we're at war. But when we're just messing around, especially because my my gun, my son loves cowboy guns, so he loves mm-hmm. the uh, six shooters, and he'll walk around, and I've seen him like point the gun at people. I'm like, you don't do that. Um, you can point it at the chickens, <laughs> you can point it at the ducks, the goats, but you don't point it at anybody unless we're playing. And then he's like, okay, I get it. And, and, he, and it's weird, but... Like when you instill that into your kids at a very young age, they they correct themselves, and now my kids are correcting each other. 
Like you say, you don't. I mean, my daughter is a is a freaking Korean woman at, at heart. She's like mom. She's a tiger mom already. She will literally regulate, walk into a room and like, buddy, you do not point guns at daddy. And buddy's like, I'm sorry, my bad. So when my son was like little, maybe like three, four, five, six. No, probably till about five, maybe six. I was like, muzzle discipline. I don't care what it was. Yeah. And then I realized how much that sucked and how much like fun we were not having. <laughs> and I and then I changed my thing. And then it was anything that, like basically I made a hardcore dis, uh, line between toys. Yeah, yeah. And and guns. Yeah. And guns was pellet guns and BB guns. Like those yeah. were guns. And if you then it was like like being a team guy, if you swept like you were doing tire pulls like we're getting it that's what's happening but man i had so much fun with nerf guns and the oh, laser so nerf fun. guns like i had to just throw that <laughs> out the window and just get crazy I, so oh, I, so I did consider that that like nerf guns and um and then so i would be less uh what do you call strict mm -hmm. with it and then so i got him a rubber band gun mm -hmm. and he just assumed oh this is cool and I, I was right looking this way, you know, yeah, I'm looking this way. And then, you know, I see him coming, doing his thing when I'm not paying attention. I look and the rubber band gun's right here. Mm -hmm. He didn't shoot me. Mm -hmm. But, bro, what if he shoots me in the eyeball? You see oh, that's, what I mean? That's, that's I think, on me. I think a rubber band bad. gun, honestly, is not a good call. Because that thing, like, I think a Nerf gun is fine. Because even if you get beamed in the eye with a Nerf gun, you're still, yeah. it's not yeah. it's not injury code. You could probably injure somebody with a, so I, I, Look, I'm not trying to sound like a dork here, but I might slide the rubber band gun into, into the, the weapons <laughs> category a little bit. You know right. what I'm saying? Okay, all right. But you have that strict muzzle discipline, and you let them know that. Like I treated a BB gun like oh it, yeah, I treated treated like it was an AR. Yeah, you know, yeah. like this is this is a real gun. You you can't you know finger off the trigger the whole nine yards. Yeah, toy guns. I still finger off the trigger on the toy guns and everything. Like you want them to have good muzzle discipline, but I had to just let go of being crazy yeah. and being like, yo, you just swept your mom. <laughs> Dad's a Nerf gun. I don't care. <laughs> so you got to be careful. I like, I like that. I like yours. Like, hey, when it's go time, it's all good. That's yeah. another way to do it too. Yeah. Yeah. Designated wartime. Because you're not going to yeah. be like, hey, wartime, real guns, live fire, everybody. Yeah. You know, it's like, but yeah, if you have Nerf guns, it's kind of one of those things. And that's for it. my safety. Because my, I mean, my son has literally stood over me and shot me in the head with mm -hmm. a Nerf dart. Mm -hmm. And it's like, when he, they don't know the difference between playtime and like I'm sleeping, yeah. it, it's like you need to designate like, hey, we're kickstarting this. I've also gotten good at like I have locking boxes all over the house. I have one from a company called Pine World, some other company where you, you put it inside of it. It's like a Versa. I can't remember the name of it. But it, uh, you stick the gun into a holster and it clicks. And then to get it out, you need biometrics. Mm -hmm. So I have that on my desk side. And then the other one's a box, the Pine World box. You do the biometrics, you could do keypad or you could do key. And so the real guns are locked away loaded, mm -hmm. but I also have loaded, I have unloaded guns all over the place. So, and, and people have asked me like, well, don't you think that's irresponsible? No, because I am demonstrating like, like you want to see your kid's behavior around guns. And the more that you make it like this, this uh, secretive thing, like yeah. we did, mm -hmm. dude, I remember getting my dad's duty gun and literally pointing I should probably never say this out loud, but I took my dad's duty gun and shot out the back of our trailer park in Florida once. <laughs> I think that's the first time I've ever said that out loud. <laughs> Hopefully well, it doesn't come back to, to haunt. Podcast. <laughs> it doesn't haunt me, but I literally remember doing 
like getting his gun, looking in the mirror and pointing it, and it's a loaded gun. It's a wait, did you have an AD out the window? No, no, no. I legitimately like opened the back and there was a trail or a railroad yard and there was scrap metal and everything. And I just was like, I got this. And it was real loud and it scared the hell out of me. And I was like, oh my God. And I put it up and I didn't even put around back in that gun. Mm. And my dad just went around his business. I'm like, I mean, how much of a buddy screw is that? Was it a wheel gun? What was it? It was a, it was a three, it was a concealed carry gun. I think it was his ankle Uh gun. And it was a 380 semi-automatic pistol. Yeah. That's, yeah, you don't want to be, how old were you? 12. Yeah. Gotta be careful. Yeah. Don't believe in that. I'm sure you did something. There's gotta be something in there. Wild times. Oh, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Ones that we're not talking about. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. (laughs) Check. (laughs) So, there you go. Um, Mike, any uh, any closing thoughts? No, I just want to say thank you for the opportunity. I know uh, your audience is big into a lot of the books and recommendations that you have brought up. Um, As far as I know, Prepared is one of the first, I mean, there's plenty of survival genre books. Clint Emerson makes some great books on worst case scenarios. Um, It is is an honor and privilege to be able to do a book um, and to be able to present it this way. Uh, So I wanna say thank you for the opportunity. And um, if anybody has any questions, we're we're an open forum for everything preparedness related. Um, I also wanna say, Philcraft Survival, which is my company that teaches, educates, and equips people in preparedness is not Mike Glover. It is a team of hardworking people who present the conduit between experts and uh, people. And that is an important distinction because without my team, I wouldn't be able to do anything I do. So thanks to them for getting us to this point, and thank you for the opportunity. Right on, man. Well, I got the feeling that everything's just getting warmed up at this point, and um, I think this book's going to get a lot of people engaged in what they need to be engaged in. So thanks for joining us. Um, thanks for your service. Again, go back to 291 if you want to hear about some of more of Mike's story and um, as a soldier. But thanks for your service doing that. And then thanks for what you're doing today. This is going to help Americans become better prepared and thereby live better lives and make our country a better place. So thanks for what you're doing, bro. Thank you. And with that, Mike Glover has left the building. Echo Charles, yep. kind of podcast you like right there, don't yeah, you? you yeah, you find it interesting. <laughs> you know, Look, I'm all, not reading from an 1864 book about the Civil War. They're all interesting, but you know, sometimes you have you know, sometimes I have one finger connection to the material. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I have half a pinky connection to the material. Sometimes I got all ten fingers connected to the material. How many did you have connected today? Ten fingers. Dang. Actually nine because, you know, I don't have military background. So right, we'll say right, nine. Right. But the whole you know you know how certain content or, or certain subjects come on TV mm-hmm. or the internet and you can't help but kind of watch it. Mm-hmm. Even though you're not heavy into it, but it's like real fun, like um, you know, magician stuff. Um what else? Practical jokes sometimes. Mm-hmm. Another one is is survival stuff, prepper stuff, like that kind of bro, I love that stuff. Get you in the game over yeah. there on that one. Plus, of course, you know, Mike Glover, he's an awesome guy. I followed him since, mm-hmm. you know, since even before we did the first one. So mm-hmm. I'm down. I'm down for the whole gig. Right on. Well, um, for sure. Being prepared, like uh Mike pointed out, starts with the physical. Yeah. The physical fit. Yeah. Physical fitness. 
Um, so you're gonna be doing jujitsu. Hey, you know, he said you're this. Be working out. Maybe you're doing getting some of that CrossFit together. Both. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, hell yeah. And he mentioned this um, in the break, and this is important. Where he was like, hey. He mentioned it a little bit in the beginning, especially. He was like, hey, you have to kind of consider the probability, the likelihood of certain things, you know? So when he was talking about, the guys love the tactics with the guns and stuff, but hey, what about, you know? And he was saying, uh, all-cause mortality is uh, the most probable is cardiovascular. Oh, look at this guy with that water over there. And he started, if you notice, he started with that. Like, oh, cool, bro, but after five minutes, if you're gassing, you can't even function. Bro, come on. That's a sad state. Gassing. I wonder, I I would like to dig into the details a little bit more Mm. on his, is it just like do max? Because, you know, I could destroy myself in five minutes. Oh, yeah. You know what I mean? Even if you do burpees for one minute, like if you're going for, for what do you you call when you go for the amount, right? Best. best, Max reps. Max reps. Yeah. yeah. Bro. You go hard enough. You go hard enough. You know, like sometimes at the... That's a muster. There'll be a stud there. Yep, and I'll yep. go over there and start counting their one minute's worth of burpees. Like, you know, they're getting it. Yes, sir. They're getting it. Yeah. And th- like even a stud will be tired. Yep. But if they, if there's, so we'd have to, I, I didn't dig into those details. We'll yep. find out what that five minute protocol yep. looks like. Here's what I did. He did say he wants you to get your heart rate up to what he said, 120, one, right? I thought he said 130. Okay. So either way, I think that's kind of the goal, not to see how many burpees you can do right. on one of the minutes of the fight. You know, I, so I don't want to, but still at the same time, the point still remains where he's mm-hmm. like, hey, you can do all these cool shots or whatever, but bro, if your body's not even going to handle your life, your mm-hmm. normal life, and yeah. you're going to die because you have cardiovascular disease, bro, it's kind of, you kind of put in the horse ahead of the, or the carriage ahead that's, of the horse. Kind of like a fight gone bad workout. Oh, you know that fight gone bad workout? Yeah. And it was like one minute of this, one minute of this, one minute of this. So it's five one minute things, one minute break, and you do it five times. Yeah. That's a good little workout for you. Yeah. Fight gone bad. We do muster PT gone bad. It's one of the ones we do. Anyways, yeah. hey, you're working out, you're training. You got to be ready mentally, physically. You got to get the right fuel in your system. Go to jockofuel.com. Get the right fuel in your system. Yep. Get the go RTDs, get the milk powder, pow pow. pow, pow yeah. I just got some pow pow, by the way. Yeah, big time. You know I was up in that pow pow. Yes, I do. It's pretty amazing. California. I was in pow pow in May. Yeah. Skiing in the mountains. Is But that's not normal, right? For Not totally normal, no. Right. It was but a still, little, bit, little bit of a long winter. It was there. We were, we're not we're complaining about that. So uh, get yourself some pow pow, some milk pow pow. Get yourself, get yourself the the, the joint warfare. Yeah. You know, I just um, someone just as I was walking through the gym, they just said to me, "The Cold War's no joke." Mm-hmm. And I was like, "Well, no, it's not." <laughs> no. Uh, if you feel like that little bit of little bit of sickness coming on, you need that immunity boost. Get yourself some Cold War. Anyways, JockoFuel.com. Get it. Get some subscription if you need it. Go to Wawa. Go to Vitamin Shop. Go to GNC. Get the drinks GNC. Go to the Military Commissary, Series, Hannaford, Dash Doors, Wakeford, ShopRite, H-E-B, Meyer. We're in Harris Teeter now, Lifetime Fitness, and a bunch of other small gyms out there. You can get it. Jiu-Jitsu gyms, they're bringing it in. CrossFit gyms are bringing it in. If you're a CrossFit gym or you're a Jiu-Jitsu gym and you want to have Jocko Fuel there, email jfsales at jockofuel.com. We'll get you hooked up with that wholesale account. You can deal it like a dealer. Yeah, that good right. stuff. The good stuff. 
yeah. the good stuff. So there you go. Also remember originusa.com. Talked a little bit about that today. Slavery is a real thing. Yep. Slavery is not an ancient thing. One of the many things we've outsourced. Yes. Yes. So slavery is happening right now. You might be supporting it unknowingly. If you're buying something from China, you're supporting it 100%. Don't do that. Instead, go to originusa.com, buy something that's made in America 100% from the dirt to the shirt, from the cotton to the pants. <laughs> from the cotton to the bottoms. That doesn't really rhyme, does it? Kind of sure. close. I right. like it. We're getting there. Yep. Uh, hunt gear. We're making two. Have you seen the? Have you got the the training gear yet? You probably haven't gotten it yet. What? Oh, the hunt one. No, the, the TRX train roll execute the TRX line. Oh damn! No, 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 no. Right. So we got that. that coming. So it's it's basically now we got the the athletic shirts coming out that are right. quick dry wicking. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. antibacterial yeah. line yards. Oh, yeah. They're they're available quite yet, but they're coming. Yeah, they're coming. Um, yeah, we're gonna make everything. Everything that I wear. Yeah. We're gonna get made in America. America. OriginUSA.com. Get it's some true. of that. Also, Jocko's store. Well, hey, we're all on the path. This is the path. Prepared. Part of the path. Capable. Part of the path. Strong. Part of the path. Stronger the better. Smarter the better. You know, you understand part of that, the part path. Of path. Part of the yes. path. We know it's not on the path. Donuts. We're gonna we're, we're not we're gonna avoid that. See what I'm saying? Um, but you want to represent on the path? JockoStore.com. This is where you can get your discipline equals freedom shirts. Good shirts, by the way. Quality. Very wearable. Um, shirt locker on there as well as a subscription scenario where you get a new shirt every month. Those are fun. People like them. So you can check that out too. If you want something, get something. JockoStore.com. Also subscribe to this podcast. Subscribe to JockoUnderground.com. Subscribe to the YouTube channel. Jocko, what is it called? Jocko Podcast? YouTube channel? I think it's official. Jocko Podcast official. Is it always been that? Or did yeah. that become that way? Uh, no. It right. was. So Jocko Podcast official. Check out Origin USA. Check out Jocko Fuel. For YouTube channels, check out Psychological Warfare. Check out Dakota Meyer. He's just out there getting after it right now. He's making stuff for you to hang on your wall as well. So go to flipsidecanvas.com. Books, get this book right here, prepared. A, a Manual for Surviving Worst Case Scenarios by Mike Glover, founder of Fieldcraft Survivor, forward by Jack Carr. Look at that, dude. There you go. I got some quotes on the back. Uh. Mike Glover is one of the best instructors I've ever trained and worked with. His experience in the global war on terror and his ability to combine that with his intellect equals survival wisdom. So the equation is easy. Experience plus IQ plus communication equals wisdom. Wisdom equals survivor. That's from Evan Hafer, CEO and founder of Black Rifle Coffee Company. Got a quote on here from Chad Robichaux. Got a quote on here from Tim Kennedy. And got a quote on here from Andy Stumpf. They're all saying buy this freaking book. That's what they're saying. So there you go. Get that book. Um, comes out June 6th. It's available for pre-order right now. Final Spin wrote that book. That book is going places. We'll just keep it at that right now. We'll just say that for now. Uh, Leadership Strategy and Tactics. I've written a bunch of books. Kids book. Get, the, get your kids the kids books. If you need help with leadership, go to echelonfront.com. We got all kinds of things that will help you with your leadership in your company, in your family, in your life. Come and check out one of our events. Come and check out our online training, Extreme Ownership Academy. Get involved in that, extremeownership.com. You can come and learn how to interact with other human beings better. It will help you in all aspects of your life. 
If you want to help other people, if you want to help service members, active and retired, you want to help their families, Gold Star families, check out Markley's mom, Mama Lee. She's got a charity organization. If you want to donate or you want to get involved, go to americasmightywarriors.org. Also, don't forget about heroesandhorses.org. Micah Fink, right now, he's bathing in an ice bath while eating a raw salmon that he caught on the end of a stick. So check it out. He's helping veterans all over go up and find themselves in the wilderness. Once again, if you want to connect with Mike Glover, fieldcraftsurvival.com. Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, it's all at Fieldcraft Survival. Mike is on Instagram, mike.a.glover. He's also on Twitter, Mike A. Glover one He's also got AmericanContingency.com. Check all that out. Also for us, Echoes at Echo Charles. He's rebuilding his Twitter life, which <laughs> fell apart when he got hacked. Your, your, <laughs> your cyber field skills know, failed man. big yeah, time. Failed. No. Field Liability. cyber craft survival, yeah. you got a zero. Uh, yeah, I did run into the ditch, yes. Yeah. So go follow Echo Charles on if you want Twitter. Sure. Hopefully he won't get hacked and send you a bunch of dumb messages again. <laughs> again. <laughs> uh, I'm on there too, at Jocko Willink. Just watch out for the algorithm. Man, that thing's trying to grab you. It's trying to control your brain. It's literally trying to control your brain. Feeding you dopamine. Feeding you little things that you want to see that make you feel good for .02 seconds. And then it feeds you another one. And then it feeds you another one. Next thing you know, it's been two and a half hours. You've been looking at the gram. It's Don't true. do it. So there you go. Thanks once again to Mike Glover for joining us. Thanks for sharing your knowledge. Thanks for the service and sacrifice you made for this country and to all the military personnel out there around the world who are staying prepared to protect our nation and our freedom. Thanks to all of you. Also, thanks to our police and law enforcement, firefighters, paramedics, EMTs, dispatchers, correctional officers, Border Patrol, Secret Service, all the first responders. Thanks to all of you for also staying prepared as you protect us here at home. And to everyone else out there, listen, you don't know when things are gonna go sideways. You don't know. You don't know when disaster or an accident or medical emergency or any other form of mayhem might strike. But you should know that these things will happen to you at some point in some form and there won't be time to call for help or help won't be able to come quick enough. And all of it will be on you. It'll all be on you to protect your family, to render care, to save lives, possibly to take lives. At some point, all of this will be on you. So, please, for yourself, for your family, for your friends, for your community, and for this country, please get prepared. And until next time, this is Echo and Jocko.